92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hey, y'all. This is Marcus King, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Oh no, not I. I will survive. Oh, as long as I know how to love, I know I'll stay alive. I've got all my life to live, and I've got all my love to give, and I will survive. I will survive. Hey, hey, diggers. Okay, so here we are into the next week of the global pandemic known as COVID-19. I hope you all kind of... Got a little smile out of the opening there. Um, I saw Gloria Gaynor uh, do a neat little uh, Facebook post, I think, on uh, washing your hands uh, correctly. Uh, So pay attention. Go check it out if you'd like. Uh, Anyway, I I sincerely hope everyone is doing fine and staying safe. Um, As many of you are aware, I'm located in the San Francisco Bay Area, and on Monday... Uh, it was announced all seven counties within the Bay Area would be shut down uh, with a strong encouragement to self-isolate. Um, that has since uh, been enacted in other states uh, as well, and probably coming to a state near you. Um, prepare. Uh, luckily, uh, we, we did uh, some shopping and some prep work uh, a couple of weeks uh, leading up to it. Uh, I could see some things and where it was headed. Uh, we didn't hoard, uh, didn't run out and buy mounds of toilet paper. Uh, luckily, we're almost always stocked up on that uh, sort of thing. So didn't have to worry about that. But, you know, we made sure we got some uh, uh, cough medication, cold flu stuff. Made sure we had plenty of uh, Advil and... Uh, uh, and yes, I know some people say ibuprofen is not good for it. Anyway, just so we got all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, picked up some food, made sure the refrigerator was stocked. Uh, we've got uh, some canned goods and things, you know, so, you know, we can camp out. And, and you know, it's it's still life is normal out there, um, uh, you know, to a lesser extent than, than I, I guess, not normal. But, but uh, hey, we can go to the store. We've, uh, we've uh, gone and picked up some uh, extra ingredients. Oh, that's right. Went to uh, our favorite uh, liquor store and uh, stocked up on that. Uh, that I would highly suggest. Uh, make that a point. Make sure make sure you're you're uh, you're in good uh, with your uh, local liquor retailer. Uh, so, so we're 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 doing pretty good, and and I and I hope those that are in the impacted areas where uh, the virus seems to be, uh, you know, the urban areas are obviously where it's going to hit the worst. Um, but I can guarantee you, it is going to be everywhere. 
Um, so protect yourself, stay safe, wash your hands, use gloves outside. Um, don't listen to me, actually. Listen to uh, cdc.gov or who.int, okay? Um, uh, my family has complied, and I haven't been out of the house since, well, Tuesday. That's not true. I've been... We went to the store on Thursday and got some stuff. And, you know, we've also been able to get out and exercise, uh, walk down uh, with the dogs to the beach and things like that. So, you know, um, uh, it's um, it's surreal, uh, definitely. But, um, you know, it's not uh, um, it's not like the movies, put it that way. Um, You know, um, this is a serious event probably the most serious event that we as a world have uh, endured uh, since World War II. This is impacting every country uh, and will impact uh, all of us uh, for uh, the foreseeable future. So keep that in mind. Uh, All right. And uh, oh man, what am I doing? And sure, it appears to be a manageable sickness to most folks. Um, But again, don't listen to me cdc.gov, who.int. I will say, and and this is fair, I I think just, you know, you can be asymptomatic and passing it along to others uh, who are in a compromised category of age or, you know, immune suppressed or with other health issues. So just keep in mind, it's it's more than just about you. Uh, You know, keeping yourself healthy uh, by isolating will uh, immensely keep others healthy. Uh, is the point. So we we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. Um, That's what flattening the curve is about. Uh, And uh, uh, just be smart about it. Uh, It's all I ask. All right. Uh, We in the United States are woefully lacking uh, in test kits. Uh, It is getting better uh, slowly. Uh, If we can get those widely available, you know, we can do a better job of separating the ill from the healthy, uh, which would then allow those we know without the coronavirus or those who have had it and have um, gotten through it to to go back to work and get our economy going again. Um, You know, look to uh, South Korea, uh, probably a great model um, for uh, how to how to deal with this. Uh, And granted, they've had some experience uh, with MERS and SARS uh, over the last uh, 20 years. And man, if you think about it, just uh, what the world has gone through since you know, September 11th, 2001, um, just, I mean, that was a huge change in society and how we live our lives. Uh, we've had a couple of these, uh, epidemics. This is the first one that's turned into a full scale pandemic. Um, uh, Jesus, I, you know, I survived a mass shooting last year. Uh, we went through the California wildfires, you know, Australia went through their wildfires, impeachment, uh, how much more shit is going to be thrown at us? Um, or, you know, is this all a sign, uh, you know, something that we should be paying attention to? I don't necessarily mean a metaphysical sign. I just mean like, um, uh, well, maybe we are doing some things wrong and we need to reevaluate. Uh, all right. So um, in um, uh, other happy news, we've heard Universal Music Group President Lucian Grange has contracted the virus and has been hospitalized. Uh, he seems to have been hit hard um, compared to a lot of the other celebrities that we've seen out there. So we really wish him a speedy recovery. 
All right. So, look, we're all going to be cooped up for a time. Um, but we have a lot of edutainment choices for you here at Pantheon. So when you got nothing to do, listen to a podcast. Tell a friend to listen to a podcast. Yes, even if you are self-isolating, you can still go outside and take a walk as long as you limit human contact and maintain a six-foot distance from any you meet on the street. Um, Better yet, keep the earbuds in. Just walk by and, and point to your head that you're busy listening to a Pantheon podcast. So no time to talk, right? But if you do want to engage, just say, uh, PantheonPodcast.com. It's all we need to survive. It is, really. Well, it's not the only thing. Obviously, <clears throat> food and water come to mind, um, shelter and clothing. But what about after that? Here's a thought. Um, think of the baby boom that is going to occur at the end of this thing. Months of family isolation? Yeah, so after all the daily essentials, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, of course, we, Pantheon, have the rock and roll for you. Uh, the drugs, you'll have to get on your own. Uh, now, we may be able to help on the sex thing. You know, we've just signed a deal across the entire network with Adam and Eve, America's number one choice for sex toys. <laughs> Though uh, they have a lot more than just sexual uh, appliances. Uh, there is something for everyone at adamandeve.com. Well, if you're over 18, that is. Uh, we at Pantheon Podcasts are very sex positive and, of course, want you all to have positive and healthy sex lives, especially in today's world. And damn, if we are all going to be cooped up in our homes for a while, yeah, we're going to need some distractions. So we have some cool stuff for everyone that ventures over to adamandeve.com and uses the promo code DIGS, D-I-G-S. Free stuff is awesome. But free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Select almost any single item for 50% off. And then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. Enter that offer code, D-I-G-S, digs at checkout and get 10 tantalizing free gifts. Uh, you know, a sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And free shipping plus uh six free spicy movies so you know there's a friday night all on its own right there that's promo code d-i-g-s at adamandeve.com d-i-g-s digs promo code use it in checkout seriously i couldn't be prouder uh than working with these folks at adam and eve you know let's let's start the next baby boom or let's just pretend it's about a baby boom. Or, you know, practice. We will all need a new baby boom. All right? All right. On with the show. When I get off of this mountain, you know where I want to go. Straight down the Mississippi River to the Cold. The Lake Charles, Louisiana 
just to come on by If there's anything that she could do Up on Cripple Creek She sends me if I spring a leaf She mends me I don't have to speak that she defends me A drunkard stream if I ever did see one Levon, Robbie, Garth, Richard, and Rick A band called The Band After being the Jayhawks and then Dylan's electric unit, uh, the guys holed up in uh, Woodstock at a house now famously called Big Pink. They redefined rock and roll by not going forward, but uh, looking backwards. Uh, Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time with the band here at Pantheon. Yes, we have a whole show dedicated to the boys and their story, hosted by Ty Lisson with his podcast, The Band, A History. Um, and I've had the distinct pleasure of speaking with John Simon, who produced Big Pink and the Brown Album. So, you know, we are real familiar with the Godfathers of Americana. We've also been lucky to have several of the great rock and roll photographers on our show here. Uh, Mick Rock, uh, Bob Gruen, uh, even Julian David Stone, who, who you know, as an amateur, uh, was pretty wild. And in a few weeks, we have Kevin Cummings from the NME tied up, teed up here. So we also have a show dedicated to the imagery of rock and roll, hosted by the amazing Kosh, who was our director on over 2,000 albums, his first being Abbey Road. So today, you know, we get to add uh, to both of these categories, the band and a great rock and roll photographer. Yeah, we have the guy who took what I think is the greatest shot of Dylan ever taken, and that is the cover of his Nashville skyline, where Bob has the wry smile and uh, is at his most inviting ever. Elliot Landy took that photo. Elliot was also the photographer who was ensconced with the band for two years as they wrote and recorded those first two albums. He's also associated with that uh, big festival up there in 1969, you know, the one they call Woodstock. If you go to the museum at Bethel Woods and visit, uh, well, more than half the permanent photos are Elliot's. He worked very closely with Michael Lang as the whole thing was being put together. And of course, uh, he was there to document those three days of peace and music. Elliot is a 60s rock and roll legend. He shot all the big names, Jimmy and Janice, Warhol, Van the Man, uh, the Moondance cover, and the Beatles. Always at the right place at the right time. And as he says, he shot them to make them beautiful. And he did. In 2014, Elliot ran a Kickstarter campaign for his book, The Band Photographs, 1968 to 1969. At the time, it went on to being the highest funded photographic book ever on the funding platform. Uh, It was published in 2016 and can now be found at your favorite bookseller. Well, now he has a new Kickstarter program going for an additional book on the band. Uh, This time it's called contacting the band. A wonderful play on words uh, because this new book will be his original contact sheets of the photo shoots. It's an extraordinary peek uh, behind the process of shooting a legendary band. 
If you don't know or don't remember back in the days of film, you know, you had a limit of photos you could take. So you'd carefully shoot a roll of 24, 36 frames, develop them onto a contact sheet, usually a 8 by 10 photo paper, uh, just so you could go through them and pick out the best ones to develop into the full photos. It's a cost-saving measure when you the cost of shooting was rather expensive, unlike today. So what Elliot has in mind is giving you all the shots taken on a particular shoot or day. This gives us more insight into the guys and how they worked with the camera. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, a peek behind the curtain. It sounds like a, a must-have for any fan of the band and for any fan of rock music in general please go to kickstarter.com and search for elliot landy to contribute uh there are a lot of great gifts for patrons and for just about any budget all right let's help elliot get this thing published in the meantime Let's dive into not just this project, but all that is Elliot Landy. And let me say, we really hit it off. I thoroughly enjoyed spending time with him. Uh, you'll be able to tell because these, uh, the interview is a rather long one, but it's filled with wonderful stories and recollections with, uh, with the man worth every second. Okay, diggers, let's talk with Elliot Landy. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Elliot Landy. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It's a sunny day. I'm in South New York where I live, and it's, it's a beautiful, the sun's out, not too cold, and I'm on the phone with you, so go ahead. Very nice, very nice. So I, I just have to start with an all-encompassing question to get the juices flowing, uh, you know, just to get the perspective of, of someone who visually captured history, you know, back when a single photograph could be hugely impactful. And for reference, I'll, I'll say that the, the photo of that South Vietnamese major general summarily executing a Viet Cong handcuffed prisoner, you know, a photo that rattled many Americans and, and added more questions to the war in its moment. Um, you know, what do you think of the world of photography today, you know, where everyone has a high quality camera on their phones? Hmm. Let's see. First of all, it expands the possibility of creative input uh, from when it was only possible to do it with film cameras. Film cameras that uh, are part of my lifespan were brownie cameras and then 35 millimeter cameras and so on. But just like um, uh, when small film cameras came out, like 35 and two and a quarter and sorry, 35 millimeter and 120 film size cameras, that was, that opened up the world of creative uh, 
uh, um, creative um, exploration, creative statements from people that didn't mind schlepping around uh, tons of equipment on horseback <laughs> right, <laughs> or, right. or in trucks, you know, like, like in the beginning it was on horseback and then it was in trucks, it was horseback and uh, horse and wagons. And then it was in trucks and so on. So as the technology got miniaturized, it, it expanded the pool of, of quote unquote photographers. <laughs> um, and which is great. A good example is my wife who takes beautiful, beautiful photographs. But when she didn't have the iPhone uh, or, the, but when she didn't have a mobile phone available to her, uh, she really didn't take too many photographs because she didn't, the equipment was burdensome. And she uh, pr preferred to be uh, connected to life rather than connected to mechanical things. Yes, I can see so that. So it really, it really makes it easier. It lowers the entry bar. The, the it lowers the price of entry. It lowers the bar, so that uh, more people can do it. And that's uh, good and bad. When I say good and bad, I mean good and bad for this, let's use the word art of photography. Because there are so many more pictures, it's confusing, right? Right. right. Uh, like you, you, there's a lot more info. At the same time, there's a lot more great photographs being taken. So really what we need is curation. We need to, which we've always had up till now, up till the internet, we, we had, the only way you could see a picture was through curation. A magazine published it, a newspaper published it. Uh, and you, you, you think and, we lost that? Well, I, I, yeah, well I know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of good curation on the web, okay, but one has to find it. Yeah. So yeah. In, the, in, in in before the internet, you, you went you found the curation by going into a magazine store. Yeah. And you saw popular photography, let's say, which wasn't necessarily a curator of art, let's call it. But it, it had to be printed. So so you you went into a bookshop, and you saw the um, uh, you know books that were published by publishers. There were gatekeepers. The publishers were the gatekeepers. Now there's no more gatekeepers, so the gates are wide open. So we really have to find uh, uh, spots or, that we like, curated uh, websites. Let's call it, um, or or on Facebook, it's it's a, a particular person or Instagram yeah, is a better example. And Facebook, right, right, right. yeah. Well, not even an influence, because influencers don't necessarily, well, yeah, somebody you like, somebody you want to follow, somebody who speaks to you, whose work speaks to you. And that's really fantastic to have that opportunity, because, I mean, I, my work was not widely published when I was doing it. It was published in record albums and so on, but I, I didn't have my first book published in, let's see, my first book was in Germany in 1984. And then my first United States book was, I think it was 1994. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and that uh, so my work was not really recognized. No, it was for, uh, it was I mean, meant to be uh, ephemeral, uh, I think, uh, and uh, you know, in its moment. And it, it it is after the fact that when people begin to look back at history, that uh, that maybe these things have have have, have taken more value. I, I like that. I, I agree with what you said. Yes. Yeah. So um, all this, the mobile stuff and the small cameras, it really opens up the door to a lot more mm -hmm. uh, creative work. And some of the work that is held up as art by by uh, by websites, by galleries, and so on, I can't stand. 
um, <laughs> but there are a lot of but there are a lot of people that love it. Yeah. yeah. So which is great because that's what we're finding. It's just like TV. There are so many more TV stations that that no none of the the three or four major networks have the amount of people that they used to have. People have a choice. Um, it, it it goes along with everyone with what's happening in in the world in general. That everyone is getting to be themselves. That's capital B, capital uh, uppercase B, uppercase E themselves. Everyone's getting to be themselves in uppercase letters in the world. If you're gay, you can be gay. If you want to divorce, you can be divorced. If you want to drop out of your religion, you can you drop out of your religion. Um, uh, and, and, and what you're suggesting is express that freely and publicly. Yes, right. If you want to have children, you can. If you want to have children and, and work at the same time, you can do that. If, if, if you want to stay home with your children, you happen to be a man, you can do that also. So it's the same thing with art. We're able to to uh, find our audience for everything. And and, and uh, um, I think a good example is, is the music that Bob Dylan and the band played together when they first started doing it, how people were booing them and so on. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, Bob Bob going electric, basically. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it allows. So uh, so in, in those years, no one else could have done what he did. He could do it because he he was this world famous figure, and no matter what he did, people were still going to pay attention. In these years, uh, somebody could do something completely new like that, mm. and it can be found on the internet. So you don't have to have a previous reputation. Let's say to to break to 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 break uh, break away old break up old old habit patterns old ways of doing things you can innovate much more easily because of the internet. You know, I, I, do you think everybody has an eye? You know, or, or, are we in a better or worse place today? I I think what I'm hearing from your explanation is a, a double edged sword. Well, first of all, everybody has their own eye, and and uh, there are some people with who who have great photographic eyes who aren't necessarily moved to share their photographs as let's call it artwork they don't really want to say well look at my photographs they just take it because they enjoy taking it and seeing it themselves my son-in-law is a case in, in, in uh, of that where he takes he and his wife take extraordinary photographs of their children but it's on a private instagram site he's not interested in saying i'm a great photographer but I, I when I see what he does and how he does it, I say, my goodness, you know, you could do gallery shows with this stuff. It's so nice. Really? It's just not what he wants to do. Yeah. With me, uh, it was always like I took pictures because I wanted to share them with people. Mm-hmm. I took photographs of things I thought were were beautiful, and I said wanted to say to someone, look how beautiful this is, you know. Right. So that was my motivation from the beginning. He doesn't want to do that. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Does that answer the whole question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of. So, oh, oh, oh uh, no, no. I, I'm sorry. You're asking me if if it was a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we've kind of started to delve into that. Uh, uh, that uh, that it, it kind of it it kind of is. Uh, but I just wanted to get a, you know a it is, further it, explanation. It, for it. I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot more opportunity to choose what you want to do in life. And and uh, you can be, I guess this goes back to what I was saying earlier, you yeah. can be a photographer without having to pay a penalty, without having to pay a price in terms of time and, and, and money and, and, and physical effort. You can take gorgeous pictures carrying something that weighs, you know, 10 ounces yeah. rather than five or six pounds. So uh, it allows people 
who just want to take the picture uh, to take it. And uh, you don't need the, the, the pay the high price of entry. It's the same thing about that. And, and therefore, you get a lot of great pictures that you would not have that would not have existed otherwise. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. Yeah, but but wouldn't you say we're 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 inundated by by so many uh, um, uh, pictures and and photography is not the only uh, uh, art form that's being disrupted like this. Uh, you know, music itself is 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 being disrupted uh, with uh, just an onslaught of choices. And uh, uh, you know, so to 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 find the future Elliot Landys, I I think it, it's kind of hard to rise out of uh, the sea of mediocrity. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. Am I wrong? Um, well, yes and no. <laughs> um, there are also uh, to rise out of sea of mediocrity, you have to either be discovered by chance, in other words, you got to be searching around and find a link or something like that. Um, or go to a curator such as uh, I use, uh, I won't even say which one, but uh, the camera ma manufacturers have their galleries. And, and uh, you know, I've mentioned them all, Sony, Canon, Fuji, um, uh, Pentax, all the uh, the paper manufacturers, Canson, um, Hannah Mueller, all have galleries. So uh, you just look around and see what you like. And then let's say you see someone's name on the Canton website. Then you see if they have a website uh, to be looked at, or you see if they're collected in a gallery's website. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's work, but it's, I don't know, it's probably easier than walking to the local candy store to see the magazine rack yeah. as, as it used to be. Yeah. And the problem with that is that, that not all the magazines were represented. I mean, this great camera magazine that was a, a was a European magazine for so many years in many European countries was not in the United States, and they were published gorgeous photographs. Ah. Um, so now you have access to everything that's out there, and if you really care about it, if you're really looking for it, you search for it, and hopefully you'll stumble across it. I, you, one finds things on the Internet by chance also. It's not like you have to be really focused or directed to what you're going to see. Mm -hmm. um, you look around, you click here, you click there. You know, I think you've actually done a, a, a book kind of about this uh, called People Taking Pictures. Oh, wow. I haven't done that book yet. And and I love that series. I would love people to look at that stuff. I took this before. This was before the the mobile phone age, I guess. And uh, uh -huh. I think they're gorgeous photographs of people taking pictures. Uh, and uh, there, I, I haven't seen anything like it actually. I don't know why no one else has done this kind of thing. Um, and it shows how into it people are, how really in love with what they're doing. They're whole body is part of the camera and their camera is as part of their body as if it was as if it was attached to them when they were born um yeah and it yeah. just shows the love that that you know the back and forth the give and take between doing the picture first and then um what comes out of it the expectation for what you're going to get from it um yeah, so thank you. I, I I have so many series like that that I really need to put out. I'm thinking about doing a series of small books. Let's see, doing a, to right now I'm doing this Kickstarter project for my book of mm. uh, my second book of photographs I've taken of the band. 
But the people taking pictures yeah. is a series that I, I started to do some print-on-demand books that are at the moment available on Amazon. There's only one available, but I I'm, I'm, have several more in progress. I'm thinking about doing just quick print-on-demand books uh, of things like people taking pictures. I have impressionist flowers I do that uh, yeah. uh, really beautiful yeah, work. Kaleidoscope. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, I think you have a book on that as well. Uh, yeah. yeah well. Actually, not a book. It's just sections on my website. I've never done a book of the kaleidoscope mm. pictures, um, but I need to do that. So I ex- experimented with print-on-demand uh, companies. The problem is consistency. Uh, so when I printed my band book, I made sure that it was perfect. Uh, we did many, many proofs right. and the and the, right. and the press. When you do a print-on-demand book, most of the time it's right on, and but some of the time it's not. Oh. So if if you sell it, you you do your print-on-demand book and you list it, and it's listed in your catalog, and then people buy it directly from the catalog, and you don't get to look at it at all. You don't get to proof it at all, and so most of the time it's it's good, like you want it. Uh, by good, like you, know what I mean, when I first uh, create a print-on-demand book, I work with it. Uh, I create it. I get a proof of it. I adjust my files. I get another proof of it. I adjust yep. my files further. So usually two, three, four times it takes to get it to look good. Iterations. Right? But th- that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Iterations. But there's no there's no guarantee that every time it's going to be printed, it's going to look the same. And since people buy it one at a time, I don't have a chance to to um, uh, ensure that to confirm that that it was printed correctly this time. However, that's a small thing, but I'm very particular about stuff, and, and uh, it holds me back a little bit. As you should be. Well, I I don't know. <laughs> you are, okay, thank you. I, I hope so, actually. Cause, you're you're a, a world famous uh, photographer, so of course you're exactly. Uh, you know, I see the difference actually, and I spend lots of time printing. You know, I, I have a woman who prints for me. Um, and I spent a lot of time with her making iteration and iteration and iteration of prints, change this color a little bit, change this darkness a little bit. Yeah. And and it, it's never it's never a single thing, just do it and it's done. Um and and that's what makes and I well, that, I see that's the, the difference. difference. That's a, that's the, that's what makes an artist. Well, it's not only really that, but that's what makes for the human experience. The, the the little nuances to me make such a difference in the way an image is experienced. And it's so important to take mm-hmm. that time and do it because I hate taking that time. I'd much rather be walking around in the sunlight, you know, um, but oh, I have yeah. to do that because that's that's what people see. And that really makes a big difference. The, the little, little nuance of how something looks so important as to how it makes the person feel. For me, the important thing in experiencing any any art form, art form is just a, 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 a phrase for for what people do. Is is the, um, uh, the the tiny details of it? I guess the yeah yeah being exacting uh, and you know to to the point of self satisfying yeah. and then putting it out. Many years ago, I heard a criticism of Barbara Streisand that it was when she was directing films, and uh, the criticism was, "Oh, she's 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 too." She's she's too exacting or yeah. too uh, she uh, you know she, she's too demanding was the word something like that you know yeah and I said my God what nonsense whoever yeah. said that that's so unfair 
because number one, it's her film. So she's the artist. She has a vision for it. And to say that she's too demanding is just to not really understand what you're part of. And what you're part of when you work with someone is you're part of their vision for something and, and who they are and, and expressing that to the rest of the world, which is if the, if the person's, if the person is, is, has enough of uh, essence uh, uh, that they're expressing, people enjoy it. Well said. Well said. All right. So, so uh, to move on, let, let, let's get a bit of your background, your history, uh, and and then your history with photography. Um, I think you were uh, you're, you're a baby boomer, born uh, right smack in the middle of World War II, uh, and I believe in New York City as well, right? Yes, I was born in the Bronx in, in 1942. So, growing up, um, you know, how how did photography enter your life? Um, <laughs> good question here. When I got into photography, I had no interest in photography at all. Um, I was 13 years old and I was, uh, uh, in a bungalow colony with my parents for the summer and the bungalow colony had organized activities for, for the kids. Mm-hmm. And so there was like a day camp there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when you're 13 years old, you were too young to be a counselor too old to be a camper. So they made you a counselor in training. Okay. okay. And the counselor in training did a different activity every week. So mm-hmm. one week it was boating. And this, this has to be in the cat skills, right? It wasn't actually, well, it, it was in Nyack, New York, which is, uh, which is basically a, a, a 30 minute drive from New York city, uh-huh. but, but it was also 50 years ago. So, so there was a lot less development than there is today. Yeah. So, um, it was in the Hudson River Valley, I guess you'd say. Um, so um, one week it was tennis, and another week it was boating, and another week it, it was macrame. Um, and then they had a dark room there. Wow. So um, so pretty early on in the process, maybe the second or third week of the summer, it must have been about eight weeks in the summer, um, I, went in, I, I went into the dark room, and I totally fell in love with it. It was like... Yeah, okay. It was like home to me, and I, I had no interest whatsoever in photography. I never. My parents had a brownie camera that I had barely ever used, um, and I just loved. Um, I'm thinking of now the big glass, big brown glass bottles that the chemicals were oh, in. Uh, even and the they smell had a thermometer. Of the room, I'm sure. Yeah, they had they had a thermometer floating in this yep. glass bottle, yep. and you looked at yep. the thermometer to take the temperature. And they had these these trays with liquids in it yep. and uh, contact printers. So you put in a uh, you put in a negative and a piece of paper under it, and you press the cover down. And and I just fell in love with it. Um, and I saw and had never taken any pictures particularly. So I now in the way I I think about life now I'm I know it was a past life connection. Uh-huh. Uh, there'd be no other reason that I'd be so taken with it. And now I understand more about possible possible past lives. Let's so say. it was a, it was an instant um, connection uh, to something metaphysical. Uh, that's right, right. Right there when you walked it, it, in that dark room. It, it, was a, it was it was a metaphysical instant. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good way to say that. Um, but I didn't think about any of that. Of course, I just loved it, and I I just became the permanent assistant in the dark room. You know, goodbye sunlight, right? Yeah, <laughs> so much of summer. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that was my summer. You know, it could have been better. I loved it. So I I, uh, I now 
a few years within the last 10 years or so, I saw some pictures that I took with my parents' brownie. I needed some, some, some pictures to develop. So I used my parents' brownie and I took a roll or maybe one roll of film, I think. And I see the photographs that I took and they're really good photographs. If somebody, if, if a young person came to me and said, these are my photographs, I'd say, well, you have talent oh, <laughs> because really? they weren't, they, they weren't straight on. They were like, it's a picture of my sister on a seesaw. So instead of just so standing there was straight composition, ahead and There was composition it, to it. I was at the bottom of the seesaw, and the seesaw was going up at an angle, and she was standing the other way. Yeah. And, saying, and having no idea what I was doing. It was total instinct, you know, total instinct uh, yeah. to do that. Um, so anyway, that was the beginning. And then, and then um, I was going into high school. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, mm. and I was just entering high school after that summer. And I, I wanted to go to the camera club. So I went into the first meeting of it and there's a whole lot of people there. I remember. And the teacher uh, hands out paper and said, put your name and address and the names of the cameras and lenses that you have plural, right. Or just camera and lenses right. that were plural. And I thought, Oh my God, this is too advanced for me. I, I shouldn't <laughs> I can be only deal with one. And I, <laughs> I was, well, I just didn't think I knew enough. I thought I wasn't advanced enough for this, and I was embarrassed about it. That was um, self-conscious about it. Yeah. And I remember I kind of just slipped out the back, and, and that was it oh. until I graduated college for photography for me. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, who knows why? But when I got out of college, I still hadn't thought about about photography at all ever during those years and uh didn't look at pictures a lot nothing like that it's interesting to me now that I'm, when i'm talking to you about it i i'm making me think about the whatever was the reason for that but so i got out of college and i hadn't found what i wanted to do in, in life yet i really didn't have any any idea about it um and i i knew that i wanted to travel i thought well I, after college i'll travel so i got a job in a in a in a, a a company in Manhattan, and I thought I'll save money, and I will um, uh, travel for a while after this. So within the six month period, I, I was going out to Fire Island, where I was working as a waiter on weekends to make make money. Fire Island is a yep. is a resort island or, or in, in New York City, off New York City, Long Island. So. Um, I, I was seeing interesting things there as I was going out to Fire Island or whatever. So I borrowed my sister's camera when my sister had a Polaroid camera, older sister, Barbara, uh, she had a Polaroid camera. So I borrowed it one weekend and, uh, I, I guess she also had a very shaky tripod, a very unsturdy tripod. Right. And I started taking some pictures like that. And the first picture I, one of the first pictures I took was, was taking my moonlight. You could hold the shutter open for, for many seconds to get right, it right. A very fast film. So I took this picture of moonlight on the beach or something like that over fire Island. And they published it in the newspaper. Actually, really? uh, they, they asked the Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a copy of it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see it. You know, I don't have a copy of it anymore. Um, but, uh, so then, and then I had to give her the camera back, of course, and, um, well, I don't know which came first here, but I remember specifically the moment I decided to get a good camera was when I was on Broadway 
and uh, 71st Street, New York City. And I saw something beautiful on the top of a building. It must have been the Ansonia Hotel, I think. I'm not sure exactly what it was. But I saw something beautiful. And I wanted to po- I said, wow. And I wanted to point it out to somebody. So I turned around. I was by myself. I, I looked around from, to see if I happened to know anybody in the street just by chance. You know, I, I believe in chance. I'm a strong believer in chance. You and seven chance, million actually. people there in New York City. <laughs> so, right, right. So, uh, yeah, well, you know, you're going to know somebody. Wouldn't be unheard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, those kind of things have happened to me yeah. in, 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 after that. Anyway, and there was no one around. And I thought, I should get a camera just like that. And then I could take a picture of it and show it to somebody. So that was the, the, that, that, the beginning that was the of my moment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I, I guess so. That's a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So I got a camera and I took one course in the tech, the technique, even though I had done all this stuff in, uh, in when I was 13, I, I took a very simple course at the camera club of New York with a guy that just taught technique, you know, develop a fixer, stop bath. Yeah. And you make a print and you wax it with bowling alley wax, stuff like that, you know, that I never did. Uh-huh. Um, and I then I, I read magazines, photography magazines. I was pretty much self-taught. Um, and what did I do? I just started taking pictures here and there. I have some pictures I took in Fire Island and, and uh, uh, just started taking pictures here and there. And let's see. So I was still all this time I had this job in, in, in the company. And at some point the job ended. And I didn't have enough money to travel yet. And and I thought, well, I have to now and I hated the job, of course. I hated what I was doing. Because it was a it was a it was a silly thing. It was um and uh it was women it was in the fashion business, right? But it was the unfashion. It was like uh midwestern house dresses. Oh. <laughs> the opposite kind of right. thing. Not but, nothing sexy. I mean, which there. is okay. Right, right. I don't have any disdain for it. It's just not my in in my interest range right. at all. That that's what I mean by it. For a lot of people, it's great they have these things to wear that they love. So yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So um, I thought. So I wasn't going to work anymore. I couldn't do that. And I thought, well, I have to find something I like to do and and earn money from it. And there were two things. I thought, what do I like to do? I like going out with girls, <laughs> and I like taking pictures. And I and I realized I didn't want to earn money from going out with girls, so I said, "Well, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to look." I into believe that would be called a gigolo uh, there, Elliot. Uh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I needed that. <laughs> good professional choice but, uh, to go with the camera. But the, right, exactly. Good, good choice of profession, right? <laughs> well, so I uh, let's see. You know, people come to me, uh, young people or even older people, when I do a lecture something like that and they want to show me their pictures and or you know i'm doing a portfolio review or something like that and and they start off or just in the conversation they start off by saying i'm not a professional but i'm not a professional photographer but you know and then they go on to showing pictures and i always stop them i say i say in in some professions being in in some things in life being a professional is illegal you know (laughs) it's against the law and the fact that you do it for love is so much more important to me and then if you do it to make money from right so i i differentiate between that so very good very good um, philosophy so i I, I, well, I try and make people feel comfortable with what they love because people think, well, if I'm not a prof- if I'm not validated by making money, then what I what I'm doing can't be that important or that good. So I try and dispel that that um, that um, erroneous thought. Yeah. Let's say I make a point of doing that to say, hey, 
you don't have to earn money from something to make it really important to do and important for other people also possibly. Um, so I, uh, I took this one course and then I went to, uh, so I learned the technique and I started taking pictures with, I guess I bought a knicker mat, I think. And within a week I had to trade it up to get a Nikon F. Within a week? Um, yeah, within a week. Well, I mean, I, I got my money back on the first one. I exchanged it in the camera store. Yeah. Well, what happened was that the, that the Nikon F, it had a, a, um, a viewfinder that you can look at from the top. So you can look, you can hold the camera down low and look through the viewfinder. Right. And I remember being on the on the on the ferry to Fire Island and and uh, with my knicker mat and wanting to take a picture I couldn't get by holding it up to my eye. And I thought, well, I'll, the, the the Nikon I could I could have it's called a waist level viewfinder. Yep. So I could hold it down at my waist and take the picture. Mm. So that's why I traded up to to a Nikon F almost immediately. Okay. So. Um, I began taking some pictures and they were, I really liked them a lot. I, I set up a dark room in my, I was still living in my parents' house, uh, in, uh, I was, um, in the Bronx and, uh, they were away. So I would set up a dark room in the kitchen, a kitchen table and so and develop my prints and stuff nice. like that. Nice. Um, so, so then I, I took, I was looking for photography classes to take, and there were none in New York City at that time. There was one, really? uh, the new school for social research. Well, photography wasn't really considered an art form in those years. Uh -huh. There was no, um, uh, uh, and, and they didn't teach it in art schools. They didn't teach it as far as I could find out. So uh, there was a woman named Lisette Modell, a, a great photographer, a, a, a very well thought of photographer. Um, and she taught a class at, in the new school. And I still didn't know if my pictures were good or not. Uh, and uh, I liked them, but I didn't know. And this was a class in aesthetics. And um, I, didn't, I didn't have much money then because I had stopped working. So you, would, you could be a monitor of the class and um, uh, get the class for free as long as you, you took attendance for them. So I went to see her. She she required an interview before she accepted into her class. Anyway, and so I went to see her and I showed her my pictures and she was gaga about them. She said, "Oh, these are really great. These are." She really loved them and encouraged me. You know, wow. and and that that's really all I needed. Yeah. That's yeah. that's all I needed from. I needed to be told by someone in in charge, someone in, uh, who's yeah. got standing and what you want to do that you're good. And and the the rest of the class that I took was meaningless to me. I don't remember much of it at all. Um, you were looking at like people showed their photographs and people talked about it and so on. But all I needed was that affirmation that yeah, what you're doing is good, mm -hmm. which I which I got from her. She she, I, she she let me be the monitor, which is which is an honor also because she she chose photographers that you know she liked to do that. And then I assisted her a couple of times in her dark room. Um, but so after that class, then I wanted to go further in, in my technique and I found a man named Lawrence Shustak who nobody knows his photographs. It's very sad. S-H-U-S-H-U-S-T-A-K. Um, and he's, there's a website now that his family is doing from New Zealand. Um, really great work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, he was teaching at the Educational Alliance in on in Lower Manhattan, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, and he taught advanced darkroom technique. And so I became his his assistant also in that 
I would set up, I would get there early and I'd set up the chemistry. See, I had experience already in setting up chemistry (laughs) (laughs) from being in the camp, right? (laughs) You had that already. I get it right. I guess I was on a career path. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you didn't know it, yes. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) So, um, uh, so I, I would come in, I, I, I would mix the chemicals in advance, and I, I would set everything up for him and so on. And then I worked as his assistant for a number of times, I don't know, five, six times, seven times maybe. Uh, I helped him out in the dark room. And from him I learned the the perfection of photography and the ease of photography, meaning that you do your best and, and then you accept whatever happens. Uh, one of his... Um, uh, yeah, expressions I mean, you, you was you so are capturing it. you are capturing a single moment and that moment's gone so and especially you know in the age of film photography you know you had to choose your moments because you only had an, a few shots to 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 take you run out of film you have to right. reload you don't you, right. you know you don't have that problem today so i can i can see and where, it, and where costs, that's a huge thing yeah and, and, and the cost is and, enormous yeah. yeah sure that's right of course um so uh, from him, so from assisting him as a, in his darkroom when he was printing fine art prints, I saw that you could spend the whole day making one print. Yeah. And I saw the, that, that it was okay to do that, you know, that you burned in parts and you dodge other parts. And I, so I really, I, I got the, the aesthetic of the, the value of perfection yeah. When, yeah. when you're printing from him. And, and the, the, um, the pains that you had to go to how difficult it was to do it. Um, and so I, I got that from him, but also as was an attitude of life. Like uh, he used to say, so be it. Like when, yeah. when something happened, so be it, you know, you know, that's, it's a very Zen kind of thing. Let's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's the isness of it. That's how it is. Let's just experience yeah. it. Yeah. Live life so really, in the present. I, I mean, it, my, it is the present. Yeah. It, it is, is that, yeah. like yeah. I said, that moment yeah. you get that one instantaneous right. yeah. moment that, you know, that's right. and only in the last 150 years, maybe 170 years, we, you know, we've been able to capture, you know, in, 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 in a, a format that we can experience over and over again, um, you know, completely and utterly, you know, changes yeah. uh, society. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about today. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. So from him, I got an attitude of life, I would say. I, yeah. I, I got a very, this is a very interesting. I, I can't. Life, uh, yeah. life, life idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And not to be attached to things. He was a, a very, just a very interesting man um, who I'm trying to actually get his work uh, known a bit more now, mm-hmm. actually. Um, but anyway, so, so then um, I started to, once I had the skill down, once I knew I was making good prints and everything, I was, I worked for uh, maybe one or two other photographers. I worked for a couple of Magnum guys once uh, a couple of times. Um, and then I started to try and earn money with my own photographs. So the first thing I did was I, I put an ad in backstage magazine, which was, which, which was for the theater. And uh, I offered to do headshots for people. Right. So I did some of that stuff. I, I did some answer. And some of the ones, I don't know if I have any prints left, but I remember them and they were quite spectacular. N- not all of them, but some were really good. Actually, I, I must have them someplace. Um, so I did headshots. And then I was just trying to like sell my pictures to magazines. I, I did um, uh, one thing for uh, um, 
well, I don't know that, that that that's really not. Important. I did little stuff here and there, and then my my girlfriend worked for the New York Film Festival. I was always a, a fan of film, of mm-hmm. foreign films, mm-hmm. uh, and she worked for the New York Film Festival. And one day she she told me she says, you know, um, Harriet uh, um, Harriet Anderson is coming to is going to be making a film. It, no, is making a film in New York City. Harriet Anderson was one of Ingmar Bergman's first muses. She was in his early films. Mm-hmm. Very, very famous Scandinavian actress and, and very famous to foreign film, foreign film circuit in those days. And she said, Harriet Anderson is going to be filming on the Brooklyn Bridge tomorrow. And if you want, you can go down and take some pictures uh, and try and sell them. Maybe maybe a magazine or a newspaper would be interested. Of course, she's very famous. So I went down there. And it was the same as walking into the dark room the first time. It was it was love at first first interaction. Yeah, you're on a um, film set now. And, and uh, yeah, I'm on a film set, but I felt so close to all the people. I got along with them so well. They liked me. I liked them. Of course, my style was to stay. I see. I'm a shy person. Uh, and if if I don't know someone, if I know someone, then something else. But when, um, so. My my my, uh, my way of photographing is to stay away Hang back. from interfering. Right, right, right. Is, is, yeah, right. Is a fly on the wall mm-hmm. type of photography yeah. where I'm not disturbing. I don't want anybody to see me, to look at me, to know that I'm there. I want them to be completely undisturbed by my presence. Yeah. Um, and that that fits into people shooting a film and all the other things I'm known for in my life, actually. Um, so uh, we got along really well. And then uh, so, uh, what, so I went the first day and I asked them I'd come back the next day. And they said, sure. So I like maybe three or four days in a row or five days. I, I came in the morning when they started and I went home at night and I processed the film. And, and then I came back in the morning again because I was just so taken with it. There was no I wasn't doing it because I thought, well, I'm going to make money from these pictures. I was just completely taken with it. And I've always gone in directions of what I'm taken with. I think that's the key to my, my photographs is that I, I follow my I follow my feelings. Yeah. And it needs um, to speak to you emotionally. Right. Yeah, it, that's right. That's mm-hmm. that, that's exactly right. So um, maybe the sixth the sixth day I was there, something like that. After I was there for a few days, the director said, "Can I see some of the pictures?" And and I then the next day I brought them and they liked them. So he he invited me to come to Denmark with them to be the photographer on the wow. set of the film. Okay. Yeah. Right. So Very that nice. was my first job in photography, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and. and <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got I got to live in Denmark and it was fantastic. Uh-huh. I oh, interesting. My my um my dark room, I had a dark room in, in the film studio. The film studio, let's see. The the, <laughs> the first day I got there uh to Copenhagen, oh, they said, "All right, we'll come in in a, you know, like 4 days or something, be there, you know." So I, I didn't have a passport, so I had to get my passport. In those years you can get a passport in one or two days. Yeah. So I got that. And then I arrived in Denmark and the, and the first day I was on the set, they they put me in this in this sort of second, yeah, the, the first day I got there, they put me in this like photography studio. It looked like a photography studio. There were these big film lights, uh, uh what do they call them? Very lights. big old yeah. style film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Exactly, all over the place. And they needed me to photograph. Was it? Uh, they needed pictures of her for the set. 
So I so I photographed her. So here I am photographing this world famous lady, right? And and I did pretty good with the lights. And there was no one else. I didn't have an assistant or anything. So I'm fixing the lights and I'm taking pictures, you know. And she's waiting for me to do this stuff like that. And the pictures came out really nicely. She she, she said at some point she said that they were the best pictures she's ever had taken of her actually. Um, and I I can't uh, I don't I never told anybody that I just. Something like that. She was close oh. to that. These are amongst the best of the best. Yeah, but she didn't tell me that at the time at all. Um, but later on, I heard that she had said that. So, she, she, all right. uh, so again, so, more more affirmation to your so, craft. Yeah, and then there was a so. But what I found out later, I went back to Copenhagen maybe seven or eight years ago, and I and I found out that that studio that I was using was the first the first. Uh, uh, the first soundstage, uh, not the first uh, film stage in, in my company. The company was called Nordisk Film, and it was it's the and it was the oldest the oldest studio in Europe, or maybe in the world, or something like wow. that. It was the first studio built for making films in the first film studio built. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it was I know it was the oldest in Europe. I'm or I'm pretty sure it could be. I don't know the oldest in the world. I can't say that, but it was really important. And um, at the time, I didn't notice, but when I went back, I saw that all the walls and the ceiling were like, were like this, this, uh, this stippled glass, um, the, uh, where you couldn't see through it, or I don't know what it's called. It, it lets the light through, but you can't see through it. Okay. You know, it was, uh, has a texture to it. And we, we uh, we see it all the time. Sort but of the translucent. Walls are made out of glass, mm -hmm. and and the, yeah, completely yeah, translucent, right? But uh, so the walls are made, and the ceilings were were made of that stuff. But when I was in it, it had all been covered over by curtains, so I didn't know any of that. I thought I was inside a wooden building, oh. but it was really a glass building. And it's I, it, you know what I was told that it's the oldest film studio in the world. So anyway, so that was my first studio. In fact, wow, that's and awesome. and and there was a dark. Room. Yeah, I think so too. And I, when I look back at it, at the time I didn't think much of it, but now I can, looking back at my life, I can see that it's pretty interesting that that was the case. Um, and there was a dark room there that I used, so I would go and make my own prints, and and um, uh, I didn't. They, they developed the film for me, but that's what I did in those days. I made my own prints. I picked out the good pictures and I showed it to them. Um, so th that lasted for, I guess, about. I stayed there for eight or nine months. Um, of course, after the film was over, I stayed there and I had, I don't know what I was doing. Um, and I could have stayed longer. I had some opportunities there, but I wanted to do something to stop the Vietnam war. Uh, and I felt that I had to do that. So my first thought was, well, I'll go to Vietnam. Uh -huh. Oh, I see. Wait. So uh, just to fill in a little bit, what happened, uh, um, in Denmark. So I had these pictures I was taking and I went to major magazines in Denmark and Sweden because this was Harriet Anderson, this famous star. Yeah. And they, they published cover, cover stories and, and, and centerfold story, you know, like major, major articles. So my first job, I was already really well published uh, like that. Yeah. And, you, and then you got a byline, you, 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 you became a known quantity. It happened very quickly. There. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it happened very quickly. Success. Like, uh, 
commercial public success happened very quickly for me like that once i decided to be a photographer it was real quick now so, now that begs um, the question how how and, and i i think we're already starting to 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 the answer uh you mentioned vietnam but but you know how how when you have this great opportunity land uh, uh at your feet you are thrust into it you are thriving in it and yet you're not really known as like the movie photographer guy no, I, I never. I, I the, the opportunity to follow that up in New York, it never. I well, I never. I never looked for it. In other words, I never went around and said I did this in Denmark. I can do it now. I wanted to do something to stop the Vietnam War. I, I kind of yeah, moved on to my it. next. Yeah. Why? Why? Why that? Why, to my next. I, I moved on. I moved on to my next aspect of photography, and I see now looking back at what I've done is I've always just keep moving on and changing what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so without thinking about it, I think I was done with the set photography thing, even though it's a very lucrative and certainly fun thing to do. And not that I would have said no, but I didn't go looking for any more jobs mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I never looked for that job; it just came to me. Right. So. Uh, the Vietnam. So I. Yeah, we've established you were driven by passion, and so something else spoke to your soul. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I feel like a responsibility. Yes. So my first thought was, I'll go to Vietnam and 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 take pictures of and show how bad the, the war is. Photographer, right? Right away, I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in war. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get killed. I don't want to get hurt. And so then I thought, well. I'll take pictures of peace demonstrations that are going on because there was no press coverage. Uh, there could be a, a very large peace demonstration in the city and the New York Times, which is a pretty liberal newspaper, would show like a, a very small notice of it. No photographs that I saw or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I started to go to uh, uh, my first, I got an assignment when I was in Denmark. I met someone from a German press agency and uh, um, I may have contacted them or they contacted me and said, uh, do you want pictures of peace demonstrations? So they gave me an assignment to take pictures of uh, the peace demonstration. Um, with, with what, that, what year was this, Elliot? This is it, it nineteen sixty-seven. It was late sixty-seven. Okay. Um, and then I wanted to sell the pictures uh, uh, to other places, so I started going around to newspapers and magazines or whatever, and nobody was interested except for one alternative newspaper, an underground newspaper called the West Side News. Uh, and they were really a local community newspaper, but the but the editor wanted to wanted it to be more than that. So they so they published those first pictures and then uh, they had a New York City police press pass that they let me use and I would go to other demonstrations and uh, and then um, they would publish the pictures. Uh, they 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 reimbursed me for the cost of the film, um, <laughs> and that was it. There was yeah. no payment for anything else. Um, but I was doing it for the sake of it, and also I don't know. I was just doing it. Um, I guess yeah, tr- trying to build up a business at the same time because I needed to earn money. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, at some point they stopped the New York City Free Press. Stop publishing my pictures full frame. They stopped publishing the photographs as photographs and started making collage of them and started making them small. And I didn't want to do that. I said, because I was always into photography, even though I didn't realize it. For me, it was the purity and the beauty of the image, the composition that was most important. And, and, um, uh, and when somebody takes my pictures and messes them up like that and just, you know, does 
lose the integrity of it. That's not what I take pictures for. So I moved on. I found another underground newspaper that was just starting called The Rat Subterranean News. And it was an, an underground newspaper specifically against the war, but against all things in the American culture that 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 the 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 we felt needed to be changed, ah, yes. like a, for abortion rights, for example, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, I then and they also had a police press pass, so so that enabled me to uh, go to these demonstrations, um, and then one night. So now you're thoroughly engaged in the county. And I was. Yes, I am. I didn't do that much of it though. It's interesting. I, I did, and I look back, and there aren't that many uh, that many shoots that I did. But I was working. I was the the, the uh, photo editor for this for for, for the rat. Um, and then one night, um, when we were through putting the newspaper to bed, I was walking along Second Avenue with two friends from the newspaper, and I see a marquee that says "Country Joe and the Fish." Oh, um, and now we're getting into the rock and roll. Okay. Yeah. And I said, "What's that?" I had no idea what that was in the PO. And then it said, "Country Joe and the Fish Light Show." I had no idea what that was, and nor did the people I was with. And I walked over to the box office, and I heard this loud music coming out of the theater. And I and uh, I asked what it was. She said, it's a rock and roll, it's a concert, whatever. And I showed her my police press pass, and they let me in. So I went in, and I, I'm in the back of the auditorium, and I see this incredibly beautiful light show, this a light show in those days. was not video projection. It was Oil. three or four or five people playing with oil and water and colors and film projectors and slide and slide projectors and being completely improvisational, spontaneous, but ma- matching the motion of what they did to the music. <laughs> um, and, and it was a, it's an extraordinary experience. So in order to get closer to it, I took out my camera and, and went, went up to the front of the auditorium. I don't remember really if I was inspired to, to, um, well, I, I remember wanting to get up close, right? So it's all actually it's all one thing. So once I was up close, then I was able to take pictures of the performers. So really, my first rock and roll photographs were were done. It was like Country Joe and the Fish. So a week or two later, um, the uh, band that was playing at the Anderson Theater was Big Brother and the Holding Company uh, featuring Janis Joplin. Oh. And I don't even think that they billed her uh, uh, oh, at the time. Just, I it think was just it was Big just Brother, Big and, the Brother, Brother and the Holding right. Company. I think you're right. Yeah. Right. 67, it yeah. It didn't yeah. say featuring Janis Joplin, but I say that because she's the, she became the runaway star of the band, even though the band was a superb band, yeah. in my opinion. Um, Could you tell that the moment I saw them that you actually, saw them? I'm sorry. I, I saw them actually years later. Um, uh, I mean, 20, 30, what is it? 30, 40 years later, something like that. And they were still incredible. I saw them a number of times and they had other singers and they were basically doing uh, what, what Janice did with them. They had other singers like singing Janice's songs and so on. And they were still incredible. They were really, really, ex- I mean, the, the, the women singers weren't as good but the band was really a phenomenal band. So it was really uh, very important to her how good they were. And they maintained that, that high quality 
for as long as I ever saw them, which was a number of times in later years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, took pictures of um, the band and quite extraordinary and they're beautiful photographs. Um, I say that because I was looking at them last night with somebody who wanted to purchase one uh, and we're going through the color and so on. And I really uh, gives me a chance to look at them through someone else's eyes in a oh, way. Yeah, I, uh, I don't sit and look at my old photographs. Let's say, uh, you know, I don't sit in an armchair and go, hmm, continually I remember that. I remember that. 50, I remember that. 60 years. Right, right, right. I, I don't do that. But, but when either I'm printing one, either for an exhibition or because uh, somebody wants to purchase one, uh, or else I, I have sometimes visitors into my studio and I'm going through the pictures and we're talking a little bit. And I really get to see how really good they are. Uh-huh. And I don't say that as if I made them really good. It's not an egotistical comment. It's just a, like a third person observation at this point. I mean, it was 50 years ago and so on. So I don't know how much one could identify with things for 50 years. I've changed a lot in those years. Oh, I can um, imagine that, uh, you know, each iteration of your life, you have different emotional experience looking at uh, the photos that were taken in a, you know, a previous lifetime ago. Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. Yet somehow it still feels like part of me. Um, in other words, there are lots of good photographs around, for sure, lots of great photographs around. Um, and my, my question along these lines are, would I feel uh, as would I feel um, as comfortable? Would I feel would I get as much pleasure from printing someone else's photographs as I do from still printing my own? Uh-huh. And I don't know what that answer is because I don't print other people's photographs. Um, <laughs> but there is something special, I guess, about the vibration that comes from them that I do still identify with. But it's it's more of a subtle, almost metaphysical identification rather than a possessive identification. Right, um, right. So it's, it's just like I've made some music also, and that music still really, really moves me. Right. Um, so um, anyway, I took the pictures, and then um, I needed to earn some money, so I went to the record label, and I showed them to the record company, and I went to some magazines and, and tried to sell them. In those years, you went up directly to the magazines because there was – Almost no such thing as a duplicate slide, a duplicate picture. Right. You couldn't make duplicates so easily. They were quite expensive and so on. And um, I guess if I were a press agency, I would have done that, but I wasn't. So the art director from from uh, Columbia Records, yeah, yeah. which was the label company. that Janice yeah. had signed with, yep. the, sorry, which was the label that Big Brother had signed with, yeah. um, loved the pictures. His name was Bob Cato. Mm-hmm. And he just went nuts he just, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just, I mean, nuts are good. I don't know why we use the word nuts to be bad, right? <laughs> like we use like like we use sexual references to be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know the pejorative sense? It's so so mixed up. So anyway, he went nuts in a good. He went almond butter. <laughs> no, almond, we all can agree almond butter is good. Yes, the good kind of nuts, right. right. He went almond butter <laughs> over it, <laughs> and um, and he gave me three hundred dollars. I remember the figure. Wow. He, says, he says I'm going to. He says send me an invoice for three hundred bucks. I didn't give him anything. I didn't license him anything. He just said I'm going to. I'm going to give. I'm going to give him the money just because she took these. Yeah. And I know we'll use them at some point, just like that. Wow. Um, and, and uh, nice payday then, for uh, a man uh, new to the New York uh, photography game there. Uh, in uh, yeah, in it, I guess 
I, I guess it was. I have no um, no reference to what that meant to me at the time in terms of income. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly wasn't making a lot of money doing it because all the pictures I was taking at that time of anti-war demonstrations and and then I started to do this concert and a few others probably by the time I'd gone up to see Bob Cato um, was unpaid work. I was buying my own film and processing and so on. Um, so I don't know really how I was making money, but I guess I started like that uh, from uh, record labels in some way. So anyway, so I then got an assignment from New York Magazine to photograph Janice, to photograph Big Brother and the Holding Company, but really it was to photograph Janice because they said to me, concentrate on Janice. So, um, and I didn't like that actually. I felt, well, it's the whole band and they're a group and they work together and, and I'd gotten to know them a bit by that point. They were very special people, I thought. They were very unusual. They were nice guys. They dressed beautifully. They looked, they looked lovely. You know, they, you know, uh, and they weren't show busy people. I mean, they weren't doing it because they were in the show business. It's just how, how hippies looked at yeah, that time, like I guess. Yeah, it was the San Francisco hippie essence. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the San Francisco hippie essence, yes. Uh, no, it's, uh, I think, no. Uh, uh, what's the word? The San Francisco hippie? Yeah. The, the way, the way San someone looks. San Francisco hippie, uh, uh, you know, that just that psychedelic uh, uh, new out there, uh, but at the same time, organic and homegrown, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Definitely organic and definitely homegrown and definitely unique. They, they made it up as they went along and they were homegrown designers working on on a very small level, Mm -hmm. uh, and making, making uh, clothing and making jewelry and stuff like that. And anyway, so, uh, I went with them to Detroit. They had a gig in Detroit at the Grandy Ballroom, and uh, they stayed with a uh, in, in the communal house of a group called the MC5, which is <laughs> John Sinclair is the most well-known oh, yes. member of that group. We're very familiar and, with and uh, I, John Sinclair and the MC5. John, yeah. And I didn't I didn't think anything special of it. I just went there, took pictures, and mm. people getting stoned in the kitchen and so on. And right. I was probably smoking also. I, I don't remember the, the White Panthers. Uh, I, yeah. The what? The White oh, Panthers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. I. Yeah. I know his story. That yeah. he got busted for so many years. Very, very sad. Yeah. Very, very sad yeah. situation. Yeah. Really, really sad. Um, just like it said that marijuana was illegal all those years. God. Oh yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have so much war if we had a culture that smoked. <laughs> People are just are yeah. just spaced out. I don't want to bother anybody. Here I am. You know, I'm having a good time here. Right. You know, right. You know this whole right. share. Uh, it's a very sharing and very positive culture. It was in those years. Anyway, when you smoke grass, you were part of a subculture that said, I, I want the world to be a different way than it is. I want to share. I want to be part of a communal experience, a global communal experience. So I got this assignment and then I went to Detroit with them. And, um, one time I was, uh, um, hanging out with them and they went up to their manager's office, Albert Grossman. Um, and I'm up there and, um, at some point, uh, just taking pictures around here and there, Albert was in some of the pictures and I didn't think anything of it. And John Simon, the producer of the, of, of their album, uh, who also produced uh, yep. the, the first two band albums, yep. music from big pink and the band. We've spoken to John. Uh, yes. And, Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So he came over to me and says, uh, you have to go now because we, we need to talk about business and you can't be part of the, you know, you can't be part of that conversation. And I said, okay. And I packed my cameras up and I left and so on. And years later, John said to me, he said, you know, I never told you this, but Albert said to me, get that guy out of here. I can't stand him referring to me. Really? You know? And John was very kind about it, you know, and said, oh, you got to go. So I didn't think any of it. The, the backstory to that is one of the very, probably maybe even the very first concert that I photographed was the Woody Guthrie Memorial Concert at Carnegie Hall. And this was um, before I had done uh, the Big Brother and the Holding Company, before I, I bumped into Country Joe and the Light Show. It was just a, a, a an event that happened while I was doing these peace demonstration pho photography. And it was the, and a, the first appearance of Bob Dylan in over a year um, in public, the first concert appearance that he had, because he had had a motorcycle accident. Right. And um, people thought he was dead, actually. No one had seen him. Right. And, and suddenly there's a there's an advertisement in the newspaper for this <laughs> memorial concert for honoring to honor Woody Guthrie. And his name is listed. It wasn't like Bob Dylan's concert. He just wanted a performance. So um, I tried to, to, um, to get passes to go in to go and photograph it. It was news and, and uh, certainly Dylan was very, very important to the counterculture and to the anti-war movement. Um, and the, I, so I called Carnegie Hall and they directed me to um, Albert Grossman's office. And um, I spoke to them on the phone and, and um, I guess I sent them a letter. I'm not sure really, uh, but they eventually sent me two tickets uh, to eighth row center in Carnegie Hall uh, and um, I forget what the letter said. I wish I had it now, but I had told them that I was a photographer for the for, for a newspaper called the New York, uh, the, the West Side News, it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, then became the West Side News and Free Press. And um, so I got two impossible to get tickets. You can imagine how fast those tickets sold out, oh, even without God. an internet. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, he was uh, probably the, the most famous um, musician and the most famous a musician in the alternative culture for sure right, in the United right. States and yeah, yeah. E even even in, in almost every other part of, of the, the music culture uh, other than those and way, other those four top. guys from Liverpool you're right well he wasn't in the uh, yeah, uh, they, they were British they, yeah, in the, yeah, yeah in the world in yeah. the world the, the, definitely yeah. Bob, yeah, right? right that's right yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right for young people it's him and the Beatles yes yeah. yes sure absolutely so anyway um uh, so I, I get, uh, they sent me the tickets and I, uh, they sent me two. I only asked for one, but they sent me two. And, um, I asked the girlfriend to come with me and, and we go to Carnegie Hall and I've got my camera around my neck. Uh, like I usually walk around when I'm taking pictures, maybe two cameras. I'm not sure. Um, and the guard stops me as I'm about to walk into the auditorium and he says, no pictures allowed. And I said, Oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm photographing for a newspaper. And I have a, a, a press pass. And I showed him my New York City police press pass. And I showed him the the letter that I had from Albert Grossman's office. Um, and the guy said, I don't care what you have. There's no, we don't allow pictures to be taken. Carnegie Hall says, you got to go check your cameras. And there was no way to get past this guy. And of course, I didn't just stop there. I said, I'm doing this, that. He didn't care. And that was the rule. So, we went back outside of, of the auditorium 
and I gave and I took one camera and I took the lens off it and I gave it to my girlfriend in two pieces and told her to put it in her purse. <laughs> and then I checked the rest of my cameras, the bags and the film and the exposure meters and everything like that. She checked uh, her bag and then we sat down and I waited. There were a number of other people playing there and I didn't take any pictures because I knew I was probably going to get in trouble for this. Um, so I waited until Bob Dylan came on and he was accompanied by four guys who were part of the band. Nobody, nobody knew who they were and they weren't the band yet. Right. Um, and uh, they started playing music. And, and then I waited until the loud parts of the music to take pictures because it was a mechanical shutter, which makes quite a loud click. Yeah. And I didn't want to, I didn't want people to, first of all, they wanted to disturb anybody. And second of all, I didn't want to be seen doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, at some point while I'm taking pictures, so I'm in like eighth row back in the center of the auditorium. And at some point I see a woman on the side, on the left side of the, as you're facing the stage on the left side against the wall between the seats and the wall waiting at me, obviously telling me to stop taking pictures. She's like, she's like uh, waving her hand down towards the ground, like put the camera down, you know, obviously. And I ignored her. I made believe I didn't see her. And then she calls a guard over and the guard then starts doing the same thing. Uh-oh. You know, he's in a uniform though, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they start doing the same thing, you know, like you wait, hit security level sideways. number two. Right. Right. So then I ignored him also, maybe believe I didn't see him. And then I see that she, she points to the, she points to him. She's like, tells him, go get him, something like that. So he starts to go down towards the front of the stage and he's going to come around up the middle aisle while they're playing, he's going to wait for the intermission here, you know, and I saw that and I looked over to him and I said, Oh, and I saw him coming and I said, okay, like I wait him. That's all right. I'm going to stop doing it. And I put the cam. I stopped taking pictures and put the camera in my lap. And then they start to wave to me, come on out. So that they want me to come out of the auditorium. Right. And, um, I knew they were going to, they were going to try and get the film. Okay. So I, um, I took the film out and I gave it to my girlfriend to hold and I put it in a blank roll of film. And uh, I waited until at least the music stopped for a moment. And then we got up and we left. I don't know. You know, I wonder if, if the guys on stage remember that, that somebody left during that performance. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right in the uh, middle that would have been a show. highly unusual event for people to leave so, in the middle yeah, of that yeah. performance. Right. You know, I never thought to ask them. I don't have any access to Bob anymore, uh-huh. but, but it would have been, uh, I never thought to ask them that if they noticed that yeah. at all. Um, anyway. He'd probably so, go, oh, um, I just thought you had to go pee. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Two of us at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, um, we walk out uh, to the side doors of the auditorium, and there is about a, a small circle of maybe seven to ten people, five to ten people. I don't know how a lot of people though. They were, and and there's Albert Grossman saying, and I don't honestly recall if I knew who he was or not um, at that point. But he's a very loud, very powerful man, and he's saying to me, "What were you doing?" He says, "You're not allowed to take pictures here." And I said, well, I got a letter from, I don't know if I said Albert Grossman's office or from you. I don't, I wish I remembered that exact part of it. Yeah. But I said, I got a letter that, that I said, I called the office and I said I was going to take pictures for a newspaper. And you sent me two passes, you know, two, two passes um, to, to come in. And my, I clearly said what I wanted to do. 
So he said, I don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, you can't take pictures in Carnegie Hall, sorry. And he said, now give me the film, right? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, I'm not going to give you the film. Um, and um, he says, oh, you got to give me the film or, or something. I don't know what he said exactly. Something but right. it, we went back and forth a little bit. And then, and, and um, as, as, he's, um, as he's talking, as he's asking for the film, uh, I see the same woman who spotted me in the auditorium, right? She's on the edge of the circle. Uh, her name was Arlene Cunningham. No, and, and she was working for him. She, she was one of his executive assistants, perhaps, or whatever. Um, and she was saying, as as we were kind of our voices were getting raised a little bit, it wasn't anger like that. Didn't get into it like a, an aggravated conversation at all. But it was like, you can't have it. I want it. You can't have it, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she was saying to him, he switched the film. <laughs> I heard him say that on the side, and every time. And so I heard her say it once, and luckily he didn't hear that. And then um, every, and then I see her start to say it again. Like this is off to the side. Um, and every time she starts to say it, I raise my voice and say, "So, so he wouldn't hear her. Yeah, yeah. You can't have this film like that, <laughs> and you can't have this film, right?" And and um, at some point, I took the camera, which was hanging around my chest, and I like, and I it was still on a strap. And I hold it up to him, like, you're not going to get this film, right? But, like, get, baiting him with it, giving it to him. <laughs> so, of course, he grabs the camera, he opens the, very deftly opens the, the door and yanks the film out. Of course. Okay, right, making right. it, as, as I write in my book, the name of the book is Woodstock Vision, The Spirit of a Generation. <laughs> as I write in my book, making it even blanker. <laughs> um, and then he says, now get out of here, Okay. Um, so we left, we stopped at the check room and got the rest of my cameras back and we left. Also, I've never heard from that, that, that the girl I was with again, either. She, I think she called me, did she, was that her? She may have called me once after that when I was living in Woodstock. I'm not sure, but I wonder if she, I'm sure she remembers the incident, but I never heard her, her story of it. So if she should hear this on podcast, please get in touch with me. I'm <laughs> yeah. You can find me in the internet for sure. What was her um, name again? So uh, I don't remember. I'm trying okay. to remember who it was. I do, I do have it someplace. Uh, it was, uh, I won't, I won't, I won't remember it during the session. I know that, nah, but, it will, but I do know who she was actually. That was my first encounter with Albert Grossman. Okay. And that happened, <laughs> that happened about three or four months. I don't know how long before, I was up in his office with Janice Shoplin, who he was then managing. Okay. So anyway, um, the next time I encountered Albert after that was, uh, before this was before I went up to his office. Uh, but when I had gotten the assignment to photograph uh, big brother and the holding company and Janice, and they were, they had a press conference announcing the signing uh, to Columbia Records of the band Big Brother and the Holding Company. And I went up to that, and Clive Davis was there, and Albert was there, and, and the band was there, and some press photographers, not that many, actually. Um, and I, I, I was I was taking lots of pictures. I got some very close-up, gorgeous pictures of Albert, uh, Albert uh, cuddling with Janice, really oh, yeah. nice work. Oh, I've seen them, yeah, that, yeah. That on he your, really on likes. website, yeah. And, 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 and he, his wife has on her wall now, and and cherishes it. And it's very moving, very touching photographs that I feel deeply, deeply glad that I was able to capture that, the, the, the depth of their connection, um, and their, their affection for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, so, 
that was the second time I saw Albert really closely. I made a run into him, but yeah, and nothing was exchanged between us. He didn't shy away from my camera, didn't say anything like that. So then when I was up in his office like that, he had, he said that to John, get that guy there. I can't stand him. Okay. Fast forward another couple of weeks and I'm still doing the assignment and big brother is playing a concert in club generation, which later became electric Ladyland, Jimi Hendrix's studio. Right. And club generation was a basement, very large basement and very low ceilings. And it was super loud. You can imagine a full, full, full on, rock and roll band in a basement kind of thing and couldn't hear anything you could barely hear the music um and i was on the back of the at the back of the crowd i remember this moment very well actually and uh, someone taps me on the shoulder i turned around this albert grossman okay oh, and no. and he's and he waves to me come back here and, and we had seen each other as they say at the press conference and maybe another place i don't i don't think so but maybe um, and so there was no like overt bad feeling between us and all that. But I have to say, I wondered what he would want. Of course, I wondered oh, why he was calling me. I didn't know yeah. if he was going to, if he was going to tell me to stop photographing or Again. anything like that right, and tell right, me right. to leave. Give me right. the film. So, right, right. So we couldn't hear each other uh, at all until we, he took me into uh, a utility closet, big utility closet in the back. And he said to me, um, are you doing anything next weekend? Something like that. Are you doing anything next week? Whatever. And are you around? And I said, yeah. I said, why? And he said, well, we have a new band that we need some photographs of. And, and, uh, you know, we, we might like you to do it. Something like that. I, I don't know the exact words that he said. I don't recall at that point, but this is what he said. Um, and he said, and so when I said, yeah, I'd be interested to do it. I asked, you know, well, what's the name of the band? We were like being very friendly. I didn't know that he hated me or didn't know he had said that to John, you know, and I had seen him around and, and we had been in the same spaces and had that no bad blood between us. So I started chatting with him about it, you know, and I said, uh, uh, what's the name? Which band is it? And he says, I don't know. He says, uh, we don't know what their name is. We don't even know if they're going to have a name. Uh, perhaps. Um, uh, we won't, they won't have any name because they want to be free to play any kind of music they want. They don't want to be stuck into being a certain genre or being, being, being fixed as, as, as doing a, a certain kind of, of music. Uh, they want to be, uh, they're going to be labeled. Um, and, um, he said, maybe, maybe the crackers you mentioned, because that was the name they used to use. We just don't know. Anyway. So he, he told me to go up and see the guys in the band. At, I don't remember what studio it was. I should ask John Simon, uh, but it was one of a recording studio in New York City, and they were mixing the tracks. And um, I went up and I met Robbie in the lobby of the in, in the waiting room of the studio, um, and I showed him my pictures. And what I showed him was I brought uh, you know Albert said bring some pictures with you, so I'd done that, and I I brought the the um, uh, uh, performance shots that I took, Country Joe and Janice and uh, maybe somebody else. I don't remember anymore. And I remember Robbie saying to me, "Well, we're not really looking for this kind of picture, but it's really good, good stuff." And he liked my work. Mm -hmm. And then he brought me into the mixing room, and I believe that what I my memory of it is that I walked into the introductions of Chess Fever. That's what they were mixing at the time, and which is quite an introduction to the band. Yeah. If if you know what that is, it was yeah. like, oh my god, yeah. listen to this He's music, it's outrageous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just that, especially was like just spanned 
the 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 chasm between rock and roll and classical music and and brought them together. Yeah, it's an amazing piece of music, piece of work. So, um, so they agreed, uh, you know, that I, that my pictures were okay. And I went up to Toronto uh, to take a picture of um, the the their relatives. We call it next of kin. Uh, I'm sorry, the band called it Next of Kin. They wanted a photograph of it. No, oh, we didn't, I'm sorry. That's I know this photo. With, the, uh, with the, There's like 50 people in it. With, with the families, right? Yeah. They're all their relatives yeah. and friends from growing up. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. And and basically they wanted a photograph of their Next of Kin. Um, and the reason for that is that they wanted to acknowledge how grateful they were to their parents and how much they loved to their parents and, and, and families who helped them get to the point where they were now, where they were making a, a, a record for a large record label. And uh, that was in, in contravention, I guess, might be the word, to this what was happening with, with the hippie generation in the 60s, where because we wanted to change the way the world was, we needed to reject what yeah, the society the and the culture yeah. that had been mm-hmm. that had been created and had been foisted upon us mm-hmm. up till then, the the warlike nature of it, the the focus on money rather than life experience, same stuff we're having now actually, um, and and part of that was saying because we had to reject our past, we would say, um, don't we, trust anyone um, over thirty. Well, we would say we. We don't like our parents. We reject our parents. You believe in this. And most of our parents, almost all, didn't understand at all what, what we were complaining about because <laughs> right. they had come from a generation of war yeah, and, and, and impoverishment. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in, in, right. And in, in, where life was a struggle. And in the 60s, we had it was a very materialistic, uh, material rich culture. Yeah. Um, so they didn't understand what we didn't like about it. You know, what we didn't like about it was that it wasn't rich for everyone. It was only rich for for a third of the population or a half of them. Or even if everyone in the United States, we had a lot of middle class and even to be to be uh, uh, relatively poor in the States, there was still the social network. There was still uh, uh, there was still welfare and stuff. It wasn't like the rest of the world where you, when, when you were, didn't have money, you were starving and you didn't have a place to sleep and so on. So, so we, I say we, meaning the 60s generation, wanted to equalize that out and we wanted to stop killing people in wars uh, and the Vietnam War being being an extension of that uh, that war warlike spirit. Right. So, so part of that was. I don't like my parents. I don't want to talk. You, you guys don't understand anything. You, you're, you're, you're messing up the world. And the band was saying, no, they, you know, they will support us. They helped us. So that's what that picture was about. That's why they wanted to include that as an homage to both as an homage to their families and also as a statement to the public as a, hey, people, respect your elders because they deserve it, because they loved you and they helped you. And they, you know, and um, don't be so, you know, don't, don't treat them like they're not important in mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I went up to Toronto, and uh, uh, then we drove a couple hours uh, north of that, I think, to Rick Rick Danko's uncle's farm. And we took the pictures there. It was very casual, like I do everything. 
Um, and uh, we, we all got along really nicely, and I guess they liked me, and they liked the picture that came out, actually. Um, and then they, the next step was to get uh, another picture for the album. They wanted a picture of the group themselves. So I went up to, I was living in Manhattan at that time. I had a small two and a half room, was it a two and a half room? Yeah, two and a half room apartment, which means a fairly decent sized bedroom, a decent sized uh, living room, a kitchen, a, a stove sink combination unit in the, in the middle between the two rooms and a decent bathroom with a bathtub. And, um, so that's that's what two oh and there was an oven the landlord put an oven in when I moved in nice. they put an oven right. in, in the very important to have, right? an, to have and, an oven right and and what's what's interesting and and then I, so I set up I had set up a dark room in the bedroom I built an eight foot sink and I painted it myself with a with a a, a, a latex a, a, a waterproof paint mm-hmm. that was difficult to get in these years it's easy to get stuff like that in those years that to really know what you were doing right. and I had this one teacher in photography a guy named Lauren Shustak who told me liquid neoprene that's how he built his own darkroom sinks because to buy a stainless steel sink was uh, absolutely unaffordable so I just built one out of plywood myself actually um, and I painted it with liquid neoprene paint and I didn't have any running water in it but the but the, the kitchen was like just outside the door. So I would go and I'd fill up the trays and everything, uh, trays and like that and get the water. And it worked out fine. So that's where I did my photography. That's where I, I did my, I developed my film. So during when I was doing the music from big paint work and when I was doing the peace demonstrations and the doors and I was, I was talking with Bob Fass. I used to call him at night. He had an all night talk show on WDAI. And I'd call him uh, at night and tell him about these peace demonstrations I had just photographed and so on. And, and um, uh, it was a very special time in my life. Uh, in the pictures now, if you look at my book, Woodstock Vision, the, the, the early parts of it before, um, well, yeah, I guess most, most of the first, first half of it uh, was done while I was living in this two-and-a-half-room small apartment with, with a, a self-made dark room mm. in, in there. What's interesting to me about it now is that that was at, the address was 215 88th Street. It was 88th Street just east of Broadway in Manhattan. And my son-in-law, my wife's son, lives right across the street from that now. now? And their apartment window looks looks out on, on my windows where I was. Yeah, right downstairs from them. It's really oh, kind of amazing, and, right. and he's he and his family have lived in a number of apartments for you know over the years, and just by by chance they, they wound up in this apartment mm. right across the street from it. So when you look out their living room window, I see the apartment that I that I live and worked in. So it's That's pretty, amazing. I don't know, pretty That's faithful, pretty I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, going back to the main story. So I went up to. Um, um, uh, Woodstock. I took the bus to Woodstock, and they picked me up and they brought me to Big Pink, the house they called Big Pink. It was it was a suburban house in in the woods in, in West Sorries, New York, which is right now I live about two miles down the road from that house. From, actually, from Big Pink, huh? In, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, we're, yeah, we're we're in the, in the town of Woodstock, but West Sorries is like just the next property over right. is, is West Sorries. Right. Um, matter of fact, my wife to get to Big Pink, you have to pass my house. So they have to go on a road. It's called Stowe Road. And when we first moved in here, my wife said we should do a um, uh, uh, we should we should do a lemonade stand on the road and sell big pink lemonade. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. 
Yeah. You could make big a fortune. Pink lemonade. Not just right. pink lemonade, but yeah. big pink lemonade. Yeah, you know? big pink lemonade. Uh, right, yeah. Get, so it, get it on that, your way to the an option. Right, right. <laughs> it's always an option. I'll tell you, there's enough people going there, you know, in general. Oh, yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so with Big yeah. Pink, so, so you guys um, – uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I just have to ask. Um, you know, uh, you must have fallen in love with the town because you're you're still living there, right? Well, yeah, not that first trip. You see, the first trip, um, I went, uh, I, I went over to the house. Okay, and it was, I guess, I got there on a Saturday, and I stayed overnight. Uh, I guess I slept on the couch, um, and then, uh, and we took pictures. So all I did really was stay at the house. And then on Sunday, um, they left. They were going someplace, and, and uh, there was a girlfriend of Levon's there, and she didn't want to go. So she stayed at the house, and I stayed at the house. And we started taking pictures, just kind of fooling around. Um, and at some point, she wanted to go find them. So uh, And I had a car. So, so we drove together through the, the hills of Woodstock, I would say, these curvy mountain roads. And they're not mountain roads compared to California mountains, but they're hills. Uh, and very beautiful, very, very beautiful. It was it was Easter Sunday, actually, we were doing this. And finally, we wind up, we go, we went one place, and and um, uh, uh, Levon wasn't there. And we went, uh, we, we went over to this big wooden house uh, in the woods, you know, it was a big house. And we walk in, and I realized it's Bob Dylan's house, because they had, that's where they were. They were having dinner. Uh, they're having like Easter dinner or something like that. Uh-huh. And and uh, I don't remember meeting Bob at that point, but I do remember his wife, Sarah, was so gracious and lovely to me. Um, and of course, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I didn't know them yet at all. And I, I hadn't really been invited there. This, you know, we just kind of barged in. I mean, it wasn't barging in, but, you know, we went there. Um and and Sarah was just so nice to me. She was so gracious. And she said, uh, would you like something to drink? And just making me feel really comfortable. Um, and uh, so we stayed there for a while. And then, but the woman I was with left. She she didn't want to stay. So we both left right after, you know, pretty soon. I really don't have much of a memory for anything that transpired in the house. Because um, maybe it was that soon that she wanted to leave. Anyway. So that weekend, I I took some pictures and I went back to the city and I processed them, um, and uh, I came back to um, Woodstock to show it to them and to talk about which pictures we were going to use and so on and so forth. Uh, and my my style of photographing uh, those years and always always remained that was to make proof prints of the ones I like best. Right. And so I had a bunch of proof prints with me. Um, and they liked them a lot. Oh, and the second time I went back to Woodstock, they had moved. They were no longer in Big Pink. So we, so I, uh, uh, Garth and Richard had rented a house on the top of Ohio Mountain Road, it's called, overlooking a reservoir. And Rick and, and Levon had rented a house, um, down a little bit lower, um, but just outside Woodstock, just at the edge of Woodstock, let's call it. And, um, so we went over the pictures. I was looking at him, talking about him, looking at contact sheets. Um, and um, again, um, Robbie said, and Robbie was the one I talked business with. So after everybody looked at him and I left them with him, uh, the proof prints and so on. Then I heard from Robbie. He said, they're really nice pictures, but it's not what we want. Uh, but no, not, not what we want, because they didn't know what they wanted. 
he said, we don't see one that'd be good for the album yet. Um, so, uh, you know, we need to do another shoot. And, and they were, um, decided that to, to stick with me. So at that point I had gotten to know them pretty well, actually. And they had, it was, of course, I'd been up there a number of times back and forth to, to look at the pictures, to take pictures. And they said, anytime you want to stay over, you just, just, just come on over. You don't even, you don't have to call, just show up and you can sleep on the couch and, you know, just be at home here. And I, I had gotten to know their story, their, their history a little bit, where they came from. And they were unusual people uh, at that time. They were, they were like old fashioned in a way. Uh-huh. Um, they're very grounded people they they had been around they had been on the road with bob dylan for a couple of years and but before that oh with ronnie Hawkins, yeah. For, yeah. for like seven years yeah. and they had seen it all oh, for, yeah. you know in, in, in terms of what people were like and what, what what different cultures were in different parts of the country and canada and so on so they were pretty wise about things and you really couldn't and they really saw through people they, they knew what people were about you know uh, somebody was just wanting to take advantage of them or whatever. So anyway, so I saw that they were very grounded and, 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 and solid people. They knew who they were. They were sure about it. They weren't apologetic for who they were and they just did what they wanted to do. And they were also very gracious, uh, very respectful, just like they wanted to show their, their families in yeah, the album. Yeah. They wanted to say thank you. But also that was true to everybody they met, everybody I saw them meet anyway, like they would uh, be as as gracious to a, a clerk in a grocery store who we met by chance in the street in Woodstock, but they were going out to eat or something like that. And we bumped into a clerk uh, and they would just stop and talk to that person, uh, you know, as, as if as if the person was as important as, as a record company executive like that. So there was no class distinction there. Um and and it was quite interesting. So anyway, so at the same time, by chance, I had gotten a book of photographs uh, by by Matthew Brady or Matthew Brady's group, a Civil War era of uh, photography. And and I saw that, and oh, that kind of photography yeah. was very a very special photography where people were were deeply connected to to the land. They were part of the land. They they lived on the land. Oh yeah, and, it was an agrarian uh, society, of course. And the photographers who uh, took their pictures of the Matthew Brady group, because it wasn't just Matthew Brady. I think yeah. he had people that worked for him also. Mm-hmm. Um, made the landscape as much a part of the picture as the people they were photographing. It wasn't a portrait inside a portrait studio. It was a portrait of a person in the land that they're living in. So if they're on a railroad, you see them standing on the railroad cars, you see them on the roofs of the buildings in the town that they're in. Uh, you, you see them in a camp, uh, in, in a camp, but scattered, like if they're not all in one group, they're all over whatever, whatever land is showing in the camp, they're in one corner and another corner and all that stuff. So they were really married to the land. They were, they were fixtures in the landscape actually. So, I showed them this book and I said, this is the look I think is going to work. And they agreed that they liked it. So I went up there um, and I don't, I still didn't have a car. I still was just taking a bus up. Um, and we drove around looking for the right spot to take the picture. Um, and I, um, 
and and I didn't see anything that really worked for me. And we went back to Levon and Rick's house, and we were hanging out in the living room, always smoking grass. And um, I look out the front window, and there's the landscape right in their yard, right in the right in front of their house. Uh-huh. Um, I have a picture of Levon and Robbie sitting together, and you see cigarette smoke coming out of Levon's the the, the the cigarette he's smoking. You see the smoke wafting up into the air. Um, and then you can see the window and right out that window was, I said, that's it. Like right where they live. <laughs> um, so we went out there and took the pictures that became the album that was featured in, in the big pink, uh, what they, and the reproduction of that album was absolutely awful. It was like so dark and, and, um, uh, really un, <laughs> un, 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 unvisible for what it really was. But there was no, I had no control over those things in those years. And and most record companies didn't really pay too much attention to the, the quality of the printing of what they did. No. Um, but anyway, that's that's the story of that. I mean, we, we edited that very, very heavily. Right. I, I went, of course, back, back home and made proof prints and went over it. It must be, uh, I don't know, at least 30, 70 pictures from that, that scene or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, so, so that's what. And to 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 move to my my book for a moment. Yeah. And this yeah. new book I'm doing of contact sheets, which which my wife very beautifully named "Contacting the Band." Um, uh, uh, I show various contact sheets from various shoots like that, various uh, photo sessions. We never a session with them. We just hung out and took pictures. The the one with that wound up. Uh, the two covers were actually sessions, but there's a lot of casual things also there. Um, and the book that I'm doing is like 12 by 12 inch pages, which happens to be the size of an LP record, but that's just by chance. That's another story actually, but I decided that was the, the, the best size to, for a book to be that you're going to sit in an armchair looking at pictures and the pictures are a certain distance from your eye. And I just felt most comfortable with that size. And after the fact, I realized that, that that was the same size as an LP. I tried 11 and a half by 11 and a half, 10 by 10, 11 by 11, uh, you know, and 12 by 12 was for me, the optimum size, the, the optimal size. So, um, so this new book, Contact is going to show these contact sheets, but in a larger size, if you've ever seen contact sheets of 35 millimeter negatives, they're pretty hard to see because they're, they're rather small. When we used to look at them with a, uh, uh, with a magnifying glass, then it was, it, it was, it was a bit taxing, but she had to look at every one and go back and forth uh, with the magnifying glass. But here in this book, they're going to be larger than they were normally. Some are going to be very much larger and some are going to be about 25% larger, depending on, on what I do. And also another thing we're doing is, is we're turning some of the frames the right way. So when you, if you've ever seen a contact sheet, sometimes uh, the photographer, meaning me in this case, shoots with the camera in a horizontal format and sometimes vertical. So when you get the film back uh, on the same strip of film, you see a a vertical shot, which is sideways on the film, and then the horizontal shot. Mm -hmm. That's a real pain to keep turning the contact sheet back and forth. So some of the roles, if not all of them, I've adjusted the the photograph, the vertical picture, so they're horizontal. Right. And uh, I mean, I just, I, I turn it, yeah. I, I rotate it. For the reason, so, right. So the top is to the mm-hmm. top. So mm-hmm. it's easy to look at them 
And I, I had thought about doing it before I started to put this book together. I thought, gee, I'll do that. And it was a nice idea because one of, that's one of the things of being a photographer was having to deal with contact shoots at the time. Back in the day. And so yeah, this was yeah, a dream to be yeah. able to rotate them like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So once I did it, I said, wow, this is really nice. So the pictures are not going to be just the contact sheet. They're gonna, you're going to be able to see the sequence of events very easily and follow what was happening. Um, on the days uh, of the shoot, right, the, right, right, the, right, yeah, right. it's kind of like the it's not kind of like being there, but mm-hmm. but it's the closest thing you're going to get to being there, right, right. So, so let me let me ask you. So, so you you shot you shot the band for two years. Um, I mean, most famously, you know, you provide the uh, the photographs for the the first album, uh, music from Big Pink, and the second album, which we call the Brown album. Uh, and yeah, right, they they right, both yeah. they both have this both the music and the imagery. Um, harken back to an, another time, uh, even at that moment. I mean, you know, uh, you know, rock and roll was uh, continually uh, progressing uh, at, at, at that particular moment. Uh, people were trying to find new ways to uh, express um, uh, this music with new technologies, new sounds. Uh, and it was always kind of, you know, moving forward from, you know, the days of uh, Elvis and Chuck Berry until this time. Uh, you know, even Jimi Hendrix, you know, is, is just wild wilder than than the last guy you know uh, maybe Eric Clapton if you will and cream you know right. and, and so you're moving in this yeah. direction generally and then here comes this group of guys who you know chuck all that out the window uh and uh have this real sort of you know uh understanding of where all this music actually came from and they incorporated into you know what we now call Americana. I mean, they are the godfathers uh, of Americana. So my first question might be, you know, why do you think, you know, especially you were since you were there and so closely associated at the the inception of them as a unit, not being Bob Dylan's um, uh, backing band or, or Ronnie Hawkins' backing band, but themselves. You know, why do you think it is that especially those two albums, you know, are just so fundamental to this burgeoning new Americana scene? Well, first of all, I was there at the emergence of them from their egg. In other words, they had yeah, been together yeah. and in, in full gestation. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they had, uh, when That's I a great met way them, to put it. Yeah. music from yeah. Big yeah. music from Big Pink, when I met them, music from Big Pink was virtually done. Mm. They were still mixing it and so on, but yeah. I don't think they were recording any more tracks. Um, so they were they were fully formed. They just hadn't emerged yet. Nobody saw them yet. It, it, you know, it's really the best uh, best uh, um, uh, um, analogy would be to a birth. You know. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of their birth you know, because I took the pictures that people saw of them. Yeah. And and that's how people were able to know who they were. Uh, and connected no, you, to and you the got that, that imagery from 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 the music. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty obvious that these two are very well aligned. And as you just explained, yeah. you realized yeah. that, and uh, and that's you know what you were able, but uh, working with Robbie, yeah. uh, of course, and and the rest of the guys, you know, were able to create an imagery that matched perfectly with the music. Yeah, well, that's because that's the way I work. Is that I don't come in and take over a situation. I come in and see what the situation is, and then try and capture it, and try not to affect it in any way at all. So I don't tell people where to stand or how to stand. Usually, I don't want to have to. I do, mm-hmm. but I, I, my first option, my first uh, exploration 
is to allow them to do whatever they want. We go wherever they want to go, or I might say, let's stand over here or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's only because they took me there in the first place, you know, to that area. Um, and and when it came to the picture from Music with Big Pink, I had to I had to to take over and say, okay, uh, when a photographer comes he was very special and they had never seen a photographer before very often. And they stood at attention and they paid attention and they looked at the camera and the, you know, and, and uh, they stood where the photographer told them to look. And so all stuff that, that I wouldn't normally do with, uh, with musicians, with people actually in general. Um, and so in this case, I, I had to say, but, but I was very gentle about it. I see, I was looking through some of these contact sheets and, and, uh, it, I see the, and I was even, I'm surprised at how much I'm interested in going over the contact sheets uh-huh. now. Um, Cause I see, I see the, the generation of the picture. I see the, the uh, emergence of the, of the shot, how it, how it came about. They're standing in different places and they're standing in different, um, uh, different positions relative to one another. And you're standing not at attention, you know, they're standing like, like you're just hanging out casuals, hanging out looking, right? And I see how how I formed them into, I remember this, having to say, well, you know, pay attention to the photographer and make believe it's important and blah, 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 whatever, whatever I said, I don't remember exactly. But, and I got them to stand up straight and look, have the same attitude. I, I It was really an attitude of, of the picture. So I really, uh, those years, it was an attitude that people have of, uh, you're, uh, the, uh, this is you're, uh, you're honoring me with this camera, and I'm honoring you back by 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 doing what I'm supposed to be doing for this picture. You know, yeah. it's also look really good for this picture, mm-hmm. rather than casual. Why do you think that, since you were there at the inception of this, that you know, there, there's an entire uh, genre of, of music uh, that is very popular today. Uh, especially with young musicians, uh, and that is called Americana. And yes, you know, yes, the, sure. the, the, the inception of that is the band. I mean, the band are the godfathers right. of Americana. Yeah, in, in, my, in my first book, The Band Photographs, I don't know, I forget if you've seen it, if you have a copy or not. No, I don't have I a don't copy. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. I, I will, if you remind me, I don't have any now, but probably in a month or so I'll have some. It's, it's called The Band Photographs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, 19, 1968 to 69. Yeah, and which was first published in 2016 that, uh, and, and was, I believe, yeah. it was the highest funded Kickstarter campaign for a, a photographic book at the time. I, I'm not sure yeah. if it still holds that title, but it did at the time. No, it, uh, it, 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 I looked it up just recently because mm. I had to make the statement for the, this for new, the new campaign. One, yes. But yeah. no, it was eclipsed by by a book of wizards and a photographer making, uh, taking fantasy photographs and so on. Mm. Um, but, um, so anyway, it was, uh, right. So in the, sorry, the introduction to that book is written by Jonathan Taplin, who at the time I knew him was their, was their road manager. And Jonathan went on to produce like 10 feature films, some Marty Scorsese films. And he's a professor of Annenberg university, whatever it is. Uh, and a very uh, oh right he started a whole he started the first uh, the first streaming movie company uh, the first company that streamed feature films actually so he went on to do many other things but he wrote this beautiful beautiful introduction which I can certainly send you a copy of that because I have that in text form where he talks about how they started the Americana yeah. how Americana 
he said, no, he said they just did their, he, he said they just did their own music and people called it Americana. Yeah, yeah. Well, just did you see this at, at the time? And, and unlike uh, people like the Beatles or the or the Who, um, uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, these are people that that for fifty plus years have been around, have um, you know, enhanced their reputation. Uh, either you know immensely at the time by being at the very top of the game, um, or you know just uh, through legacy and continuing uh, to uh, to exist uh, and putting out good uh, positive material. Uh, Neil Young comes to mind as a you know constantly reinventing himself and and being relevant. These guys didn't have that for them. They they existed for a very small period of time. Uh, you know they packed it in by by 1976. Um, even though they they did come back in some other other iterations without Robbie, but they just they they never were that giant on the scene except for the the, the about those those first two or three years, uh, and yet their impact is as as large as some of these other guys. So it's it's an unusual sort of position. Uh, in if you think about it in the way we do with this pantheon of rock and roll, and you know where do each of these guys fit in in that um they have a very unique position yeah, first of all i say it's meant to be <laughs> where they came together and they lived in a in a state of brotherhood for seven 15 years or so seven years before they were known let's say and yeah yeah so you're you're suggesting the malcolm gladwell ten thousand hours they had 20,000 hours of, uh, of, of, of building themselves before they ever came out of the egg. Well, uh, wasn't that really wasn't what I was trying to I just meant that they got along so well together. They loved playing music together. They stuck together for so many years um, because there was a cosmic connection between them. And, I mean, there was a connection between them. We could give it a name like cosmic if we want to. Um but uh, and and um, from from this uh, being on the road so long, they all um, learned to be themselves. They were given the freedom to be themselves. They didn't have to answer to a record label. They nobody was producing them. They were with a guy like Ronnie Hawkins, who was wild and all over the place. So they could be so right. the wilder they were, the better the better their boss liked it. You know, um, right. so so they got to develop. Uh, they got to be that, that was what impressed me about them was that they were who they were they were very firmly these each one was a different person they weren't like each other they weren't like any other culture and so on it was just guys who did what they wanted a very strong sense of self and and that music was just what happened i mean you get you get um people working together. You get uh, uh, photographers and film directors and their muses and so on, and, or painters and, and their muses. And, and you get certain kinds of artwork that comes from a combination of the two people's energies, let's say. And this is a combination of five people's energies. And, and, and um, uh, Robbie wrote these songs and he wrote the songs for them to sing because he knew their voices and so on. And, and they had this music given to them to do. Um, and and none of them could have existed without the others, uh, which, I mean, when they played without Robbie afterwards and so on, it was interesting and so on, but there was not any new material that was that great. They, they made three, three new albums that just didn't rise to that same level because they were, um, you know, they were parts of, of a 
of a, uh, a cosmic machine, I guess, you know, and, and, and you need all the pieces to, to work as smoothly as it should. That's not to say they never did good things without it. I don't mean to diminish them afterwards in any way, shape, or form. But, no, of course. But it certainly wasn't the same experience for them. So right. it was just one right. of these things that happens in life. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a flower that it's a flower that grows up by itself and just happens happens to grow out a certain way that's different. It's, it's like a magic tulip, <laughs> you know, the tulip that's yeah. the night, one out of a thousand tulips that looks like this. Uh, right, right, so, right. So, yeah. So it's really, uh, I don't know if one can explain it. One can only see it. It's almost virtually impossible to explain it. It just, and, you know, well, to your just, point, it's these five personalities that uh, were meant to be together. And right. uh, by the time they became the band, they had, uh, you know, this comfort level um, that very few uh, working musicians uh, get. Uh, when they launch a, themselves, very few working musicians get a chance to get. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah, and and yeah. and what I wanted to say was I wanted to give credit to Albert Grossman here because Albert, mm -hmm. uh, to me, Albert changed the music business. He was responsible oh, yeah. for Bob yeah. Dylan being able to control yeah. everything he did and choose his yep. own songs yep. and not not be controlled by the record label. And he got yep. that for the band also. So the band mm -hmm. would not bothered there was no a and r guy telling the band what they should record uh, to sell records and so on uh, albert allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do it's complete creative control yeah. and so they were allowed to be who they were uh, i had to well they had, my... they had a pretty genius producer with them as well john simon yeah. uh, who we've yeah, got to speak with absolutely as well. but john didn't John didn't create them. John just helped them come no, out. No, just like I no. didn't. He really them. wanted to I be just, in the band, I though. Just, he uh, he he really wanted to be a part of that. <laughs> so, yeah, well, he was a part. Well, he's he was glad very important part of it yeah. because yeah, he he produced the album. You know, I was, was going to say just like I didn't create what they looked like, but I took I showed yeah. what they looked like, and that's what right, John did. Right. He you know mm. he, he shaped he shaped, I don't know what he did. I'm not a musician in that sense, so you'd have to describe that more than I would have John uh -huh. would have uh -huh. to describe uh -huh. it. Um, but um, it was just like I had to bring back like the first book I did of photographs of the band was that's the first book in my life that I ever had complete control over. Um, I've done 10 books now and uh, I had uh, every other book I had like I was given a number of pages or a page size or I was uh, or uh, people put put it together for me. And even though I controlled my book Woodstock Vision, I, I controlled the text 100%, I controlled the picture 100%, but I didn't control the size of the book, how many pages there would be, the uh, and and the quality uh -huh. of the printing and so on. Um, but with this, with the first book, the band photographs, I because I did a Kickstarter, it was so well financed, I could take as long as I wanted to take to get the, the highest quality printing that I could find. Um, and I decided to page size myself. It took me a long time to decide what size the page should be. I did many, many print printouts and looked and, and I went through 12,000 or my assistant went through 12,000 negatives and slides. And then I went through what, what she picked out as the best ones. And, and we made 600 proof prints and, you know, on and on. But because I, what I'm saying is because I had that creative control and that's what these guys had. Okay. They had this creative control and, uh, and they had already, um, uh, been through the grist, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word with Bob Dylan. Um, and they saw how, how Bob stuck to what he believed in. He just did what he felt was right. 
you, you see in Robbie's film. I don't know if you've seen the documentary yet, Once We're Brothers. Haven't uh, yet. Okay. Well, you, you'll see. He, he talks about it. He says for two years they were booed. And Bob just said, yeah. and Bob just kept going. He didn't kept care. on doing the same thing every night. He right. didn't care. And finally, the world yep. came around. Still to this day, that's what Bob does. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the you world never know what came Bob around you're to him. Get. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so that's what they did. So 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 they learned that also that they they that they learned they they could have the the that they could have the power to do that, and they were given the power to do it. And that's why the music is so great. It's called creative freedom. Oh, great explanation. Yeah, and financial yeah. freedom also. They had the money yeah. to do what they wanted to do. Right, right. So let's uh, let's talk about the new book here uh, and uh, the the new Kickstarter uh, fund that you are trying to to launch uh, for this new contacting the band uh, photographic book. So what I might ask is, uh, you know, what what will uh, uh, a a patron uh, get for um, uh, for contributing to uh, to the uh, the new book? There's a number of options. The the most basic option, I, we call it, I call it the signature edition, uh, and it's eighty five dollars. When I did, first of all, I'm modeling this book after my first one because I spent so much time okay. figuring out the the different editions and the sizes and the pages and the quality and so on so that I'm happy with it. I, there's there's nothing I don't like about the first. There's a few things I don't like about it, but nothing significant or nothing that anybody else even notices. Um, so I'm using the same high-quality paper, the high-quality printing, and I'm making two editions. One is a deluxe edition that has a slipcase and cloth-bound covers and so on. And in that, I'm, I'm including a, a, a fine art print that I make in my own studio and sign it. And uh, it's going to be a reproduction of one of the contact sheets from either the Big Pink album or the band, or the, the band album. I'm not sure which one exactly. But there's a fine art print, and um, I sign personally sign uh, the pages, and then and then um, a copy of the book with just my signature in it, and has a little band around the edge called the signature edition is eighty five dollars, and then the deluxe edition, which will probably be uh, maybe two three hundred copies at the most. I in the Kickstarter I say it can be up to five hundred, but the first one was only three hundred and twenty five copies I made of it. And that's signed and numbered, and that's going to cost four hundred dollars. And the print itself is worth that. Uh, I sell my prints for for more than that. So it's going to be an eight and a half by eleven sheet, and really, really beautifully done print. And then, in addition to that, I have uh, offered uh, what I call lithos. These are very high quality posters. The first litho I made is of the photograph that was featured in the music from big pink album. However, I printed perfectly. It's sepia tone, which I originally meant the photos to be, to be reproduced as, but the record labels didn't do it. So it's a sepia tone rendition of the picture that was in the big pink album and beautifully printed. I made it so that it looks like one of my fine art prints. And when you look at it on the wall, in a frame, you can't see that it's not a fine art print. The only difference is that it's printed on a printing press. It's not going to last as long, and it's also not signed the same way. Um, and then, so that's the first litho I have. Then, and that litho is about $150 normally, and they get it for about if they pledge to buy a book and a litho, they get it for about $100. I think yeah, that's right. Wow. And, okay. Right. And it's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. I mean, it's yeah. like having. Yeah. Yeah. What, I'm, what, I'm looking at a sample of it here oh, online. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's so nice. 
Yeah. I decided to do these lithos because I wanted people to be able to have these pictures on their walls and not have to, and, and not even have to, I don't mind if they pay a lot of money for it, but I didn't want it to be the barrier. I didn't want to say, well, you can't have this print unless you're wealthy enough to afford a thousand dollar picture or something like a thousand dollar print. Right, right, right. So, right. so the second one I did also was of the photograph that was on the cover of the, of the Brown album. Uh, and again, beautifully printed. Uh, and I took a lot of time, and it's on very heavyweight paper, and it's it's done. The the inks are UV resistant, so they won't fade uh, as quickly uh-huh. as a normal a normal poster would do it. You wouldn't call these posters. They look they look like prints. People, I don't know the difference. When I look at it on the wall, unless I look at the signature, I don't really see the difference in it. So I now have five of those lithos. I won't go through. One is showing the band in the basement of uh, Rick's Rick's house. Uh, that was on the back of the, the Brown album. And another one is them standing in front of Big Pink that uh, I produced for their, their merchandising company. There's five of those that are around $100 a piece, a little bit more for some that are larger. So you can buy that with either the Signature Edition or else the Deluxe Edition. And then I have the most expensive thing is people can come and spend an afternoon with me and be in my studio and have lunch and hang out and so on. And that's, that's uh, $7,500 for that. Um, Visit Elliot's home studio. Right. Right. $7,500. And and you can look at the contact sheets in person (laughs) and you see print and and just hang out. Generally, I find that, that I almost everyone I've ever met who likes my photographs and likes the band's work is a nice person. I've never had, and I say never, and I mean that, that I recall, I never had a bad incident with anybody being nasty or surly at all. So it's interesting. So I'm sure if anyone takes me up on that, it's going to be fun. Interesting, interesting act- anecdote. Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. going to be fun. Uh, but, but, but of course, uh, their, their music uh, uh, does probably speak to people with a, with a gentle heart. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that. The music speaks to people with a gentle heart. I like that. <laughs> uh, so then some of the other perks that they could get was that there were only, I only have 25, maybe down to 20 now. I think, yeah, we sold four already. About 20 copies of the deluxe edition of the first book left. So there was an edition of 325, and I'm not going to print it again. Um, so the, I have 20 of them left, and I'm offering maybe 10 more as perks with, with this book. So you can buy... Um, uh, if you pledge for this, you can get a deluxe edition of the of the contacting the band, the new book, and also a deluxe edition of the first book. Um, then I have maybe about a hundred copies of the first book left. Uh, we we think of it as a signature edition, um, and and that I'm also right now. I had a few available for I think ninety five dollars, but as they sell out, hopefully as they sell out. Uh, um, uh, the price is going to go up because there won't be any of that left. And it's a really gorgeous yeah. book. It's really, really beautifully printed. Then I have some copies of the poster from the movie Once Were Brothers. Um, part of the deal I made, the licensing deal, licensing agreement I made with the movie company was that uh, to use those pictures, so part of the licensing arrangement I made with the movie company in order to use the picture on a poster was that they gave me 40 posters. So I've got 40 copies of that that I'm signing and and making available for sale also. And it's really a gorgeous nice. poster. It's it's quite it's yeah. pretty large mm. and it's 
a movie poster printed on two sides, which I never knew actually until I got this. It's a reverse image on the other side because I guess they put it in these in these backlit windows in the in the movie theater. You know, Uh, the the more uh you know, so so the light has to come through it, right? So so it's printed on both sides on a very heavy heavyweight paper. It's really. It's really quite a collector's item. It's not just something that came off a printing press. It's done in a very special way. So I have some of those available. And um, okay. also, uh, if anyone wants any of my fine art prints, which generally go, for example, a 16 by 20 fine art print. And by fine art, I mean I print it myself in my studio with my own printer, working with my own assistant. And I take great, great, great care to make it perfect. Um and, uh, for instance, so uh, one of those prints would cost $900 normally, and they get it for the equivalent of $500 if they buy, uh, if, if they buy the deluxe book at, at the same time, really. Right. Right. So, so there's kind there's of a lot of, there, some of the prints. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of options for for anybody and to fit just about any budget and to, and to be a part of uh, you know this this great uh, 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 opportunity to um, you know own own a, a little piece of of history yeah. uh, and uh, and an unusual uh, really you know a, a lot of our listeners really love the you know and and just like I do you know pulling back the curtain and looking behind you know some wow. of our heroes and 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 what what was wow. going on and looking that- at a contact sheet is exactly that you know you're really getting to see the process being done uh and you know as you've explained here today you know you you work in an organic way with your uh, your subjects uh and in this though you were trying to to achieve a a, a very interesting you know matthew brady-ish uh, sort of look and feel and through looking at these contacts you can see how that's achieved well, that's be- you really said that beautifully. I need you. <laughs> really, that's, that's so beautifully said. Thank you for that. <laughs> that's really wonderfully said. I, I, I try well, and express it's the just same true. thing. I, I just speak but truth, Elliot. Uh, it it is really true, smoke. actually. And that's yeah, what I so. found looking through these contact sheets now, which I have not looked through in so many years I can't even describe. Even when I did the first, my first band book was five years ago, I didn't look through the contact sheets so deep is this because I had this wonderful assistant who did it. Her name was Rachel Dobkin and she's a musician. She has her own band. Worth looking uh-huh. up. Uh, uh-huh. Rachel Anna Dobkin her name is. But she did all that stuff so I didn't have to look through it. I, you know, I was so busy with, with, with the rest of it. Um, so I'm I'm shocked at how interesting it is. I have to say that. I, it's, it's taking me by surprise. Yeah. I, I, I can I can understand that um, uh, you know uh, at, at first thought um, you know uh, a, a book uh, full of contact sheets um, uh, and and for our younger listeners uh, you know uh, you know imagine uh, going through your phone and looking at every photo that you've you know, you've ever taken. Uh, that's basically what a contact sheet is. And, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, you know that, that there's a single shot that really is the one uh, in the end that everybody agrees. Okay. That that's going to be the one, yeah. but, but to, to, to what we just talked about, 
that's great for its moment. But now, looking back, you know, 50 years on, you know, we do. We, we, we want to know the details. We want to know why these people became so special, why this music was so special. What was the, what's the secret sauce? What's the trick and things like that? And, of course, you know, it's an amalgamation of a lot of things. But each little iteration or piece of evidence clues us in on a little bit more of why mm. these people or why this worked. And, yeah. and I think that's what the uh, readers will get by looking at a, a book full of contact sheets to see the process of how these guys, you know, interacted uh, in at least in front of your lens. Wow, that's so beautifully said. And, and I, yeah, and I, that's what I'm finding myself, actually, because this was 50 years ago. Although I remember a lot of it, I certainly don't remember the nuances of which way they were standing and next to each other and talking and what they were doing and so on. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. really true. Also, something is that I need help to do this. Um, when I, uh, as I said, I've done ten books, and before the, my last, my next to last book was Woodstock Vision: The Spirit of Regeneration, and I got to control yeah. that, but I didn't get to control the visual aspect of it, like how big the picture should be. Can, can I stop you, Elliot, just sure, to make course, sure people understand that you were at Woodstock, and in fact, I believe at the permanent uh, museum uh, there at Bethel. More than fifty percent of the photographs are Elliot Landy photographs. Yeah, yes, yes, they are the the ones on the on the that are part of the walls. They're not on the walls, but yeah, they are yeah. the walls on the permanent. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, I would yeah. See so, so, so your 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 book yeah. on on Woodstock yeah. is essential for anybody who's interested in that. Uh, you know, three yeah. days of uh, of music, uh, peace, and love. Yeah, uh, I talked but, about. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. It's just I just wanted to establish your thank you. credentials oh, thank you. when it comes yeah. to Woodstock. Yeah, I was asked by Mike Lang, who was one of the three co-creators, to photograph the festival for him. We were friends in, in the town of Woodstock at the time. And and yeah. uh, I was his photographer doing that. And there's been there's, – um, and so that's how I had the access, the access that I had. And I was part of that culture. Um, at, at the time, I didn't just uh, walk in and take pictures and walk away from it. It was really my life at the moment, let's, let's call it. Um, mm. So uh, what I'm saying about this book is that so when I did Woodstock Vision and Spirit of Regeneration, that's that's my peace demonstration photographs and the band and Janis Joplin and Dylan and, and then up to the Woodstock Festival. But I didn't control the visual quality of it. I didn't have the, as I said, uh, um, I couldn't really show the pictures the way I wanted to show them. It's quite a good book. Um, but the, because I was financed through Kickstarter on the band book, it is the book I want to share. And if I don't share any other book in my life about that body of work, I won't feel like I didn't do it. I have other bodies of work that have not been published that are really gorgeous. That I really need to get out there. And it's the same with this contacting the band, unless this is financed on Kickstarter, I don't think any publisher is going to do it the way I want to do it. Um, I tried. Right. I didn't. I didn't self finance the band book because I wanted to. I did it because I had to. I couldn't find anyone who shared to the vision that the I had quality for it. That, that you needed, right? Right. And also, right. it and, wasn't. And, and, it was explained to me that a twelve by twelve inch book just doesn't fit on bookshelves, and that's why publishers don't want to do it because they have to make money from it. And and right. and uh, Barnes and Noble doesn't have room for it to, to stock in general a twelve by twelve inch book and all the other books. And this was five years ago when there were still bookstores matted more than they do now, actually. And for me, right. I didn't care. 
I was making the book. I didn't care, you know, what it fit or didn't fit. To me, this was the book was first. And then and then how it got sold was was another story. So I need that help now to do this contacting the band. The, the, the this this Kickstarter campaign is much slower than than the first one was. And there's probably the reasons for that is that when we put it out, I didn't have the, any promotion or publicity in, in place whatsoever. And then this whole virus thing has come up and the whole Trump thing is going on. So uh, people are pretty are, are, are pretty occupied with kind of with this kind of sad stuff that you know that's happening in the world. I don't know what it is. So if uh, what I need is support to do this. It really is an artist asking for support to 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 put out a work of art. I have to say it in those words. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will uh, head over to uh, kickstarter.com. Uh, you can just put in Elliot Landy uh, yeah. in search, and yeah. that will get you to uh, uh, Elliot Landy uh, contacting the band, a photographic book. Uh, enlarged contact sheets and selected photos from Elliot's famous photo sessions of the band from Music from Big Pink and the band albums. So head on over there, uh, listeners, uh, diggers, as, as we like to call <laughs> our fans uh, here, uh, uh, our diggers, uh, to go over there. I just realized I left something important out when I was telling this about Albert Grossman. The fact that, that he was he was so annoyed with me for the, the Carnegie Hall incident and didn't like me at all. But then when he saw my pictures, he had, he had seen when I took the photo on the assignment of pictures of Janice, I dropped off as a courtesy. I, I left. I dropped off some pictures in his office to show it to them. And and because he saw the quality of my work, he was able to let go his personal anger, his personal dislike in order to get the right thing done, let's call it. And, and, and that is is the, the mark of what a human being can do. <laughs> and and right. that is. And and uh, I always point that out as that's how if we could all be like that to let go of whatever anger we have ever um, and just 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 do what's 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 um, that's, that's civil just be civil to each other um, because that works that that's an example for all of us and because he was able to to go beyond his personal stuff that he had with me. Uh, that's how all these pictures happened. And, and, uh, he, he did the best thing he could for his clients, which was his job. And also I'm yep. sure other people have enjoyed it as well. So I'm always, I'm always humbled by, by his ability to turn himself around from an angry manager to, to a really supportive, uh, person, uh, to me in my life. Actually. Uh, a highly unusual skill. Uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah, Albert definitely had that, uh, in space. Yeah. So, so tell us about. I have to ask about this this sure. particular photograph because I think it's one of the most interesting photos in the the musical landscape uh, out there, and that is the photo of Bob Dylan on the cover of Nashville Skylines. And the reason why is because it is so unlike most photos you see of Bob. He doesn't smile at the camera. Uh, he doesn't look personal. There always seems to be a guard up with Bob uh, in just about anything he does. And yet you capture him in, in this way that is very inviting. Uh, and it's like he's inviting you in. Uh, why, why, why do you think that wasn't? How did you capture that photo? 
Well, actually, he did invite me in. Uh, the first time I photographed him was for the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. And um, it was the same process as with the band. I was living in New York. I actually rented a little Volkswagen Bug to go up to Woodstock with. Um, and and um, then I took the pictures and went back to the I went back to the city. I developed them and came back to show them the pictures and so on. And then uh, um, he said to me, you know, um, um, you know, we spent some a long time talking as well as looking at pictures. And I said I was going to go stay at Rick's house for the night. He said, oh, I got a place. I, I got a spare room up here. You can stay upstairs. And uh, and I and I, that happened twice uh, that I I stayed in their spare room upstairs uh, just out of nowhere. And and I say that the reason for that is that I didn't want anything from him. I didn't want anything for myself. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't want to make money. All I wanted was a great photograph. And that's that's my whole intention. It was very pure, looking art back at it. Sake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, art, art for art's sake. Uh, I, I'd rather say beauty for beauty's sake. Um, okay. okay. And, but it's the same as art for art's sake. But for me, it was a question of creating something that was harmonious, beautiful, and showed who showed how nice the person was, how, how I just want to make everybody look nice, you know? And luckily uh -huh. I, I was asked to photograph nice people so I could do that. Uh, I found that one as one part of my photography career, I, I, while I was doing the peace demonstrations, I was photographing celebrity concert uh, events, like the opening of plays and so on. And, and there's some very weird pictures they are taken of very famous people, and because what I what I find is that that my camera shows the truth even if I don't see it actually. Um, so the pictures of Bob, the, the camera uh, never lies. Uh, they say, all right. Uh, well, yeah, I don't make it lie. To me, I just I, I just make it stay in one place long enough mm -hmm. to click the shutter, mm -hmm. and whatever it shows, it mm -hmm. shows. So you're right about he was inviting me in. So uh, maybe six or seven months after the Saturday Night Post shoot was, um, he asked me to photograph. Uh, he said to, to, to he, he called me up. I was living in Woodstock already at that time. And he called me and he said, I just got back from Nashville. Come on over. I want to show you something. I want to play something for you. So I go over there and he plays the acetate of Nashville Skyline. And he gave it to me, actually, and um, which I don't have it anymore. It was before things uh, were collectible and worth money. So I remember years how, ago. Imagine you wouldn't need yeah. a Kickstarter program if you still yeah, had that thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, years ago, somebody bought it from me. I was living. I had no money at all. Very, very little uh -huh. money. I was living on 84th Street in Manhattan in the east side in a walk-up apartment. You know, still having all my stuff around me and taking lots of great pictures and all that stuff. But I certainly wasn't wasn't uh, well off. So anyway, so I sold it for very little money. I don't know. Somebody was up there. It didn't mean anything at that point. Um, so anyway, so he said, uh, um, I, I need a picture for the back of my new album. And he, he said, uh, I'm calling it National Skyline. And he showed me a picture of the front, what he was going to make the front, which, which was the skyline of Nashville, the skyline of the city. And he said, I need a picture for the back. And we said, OK. And um, I met him a few times. But the time we're talking about, um, uh, we were um, there's a certain time of the day when the light yeah, is, magic is the best, yeah. the, right? To call the yeah. magic hour in the movie visit, and mm -hmm. so um, I scheduled myself to go over there with him, and I we, we were hanging out in inside inside his living room, 
and waiting for the right time. And then I saw that the sun was just at the right place. And I said to him, okay, it's time. And so we got up and I remember I came out first. I, I went out the door first. And then he stops as he's leaving his, his, his house and he takes a hat off, off the, uh, off the rack. Um, okay. And he brings it with him and he's wearing a, a leather jacket, like a suede jacket rather. Um, and we just start winding around. It's, I laugh now because it's kind of funny to be with a person so important as that and not to have any plans whatsoever for, for, for what kind of picture you're going to, for where you're going to take the picture, right? But right. that was how I was at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that we got along so well because I wasn't controlling about anything. I was just free flow. Um, uh-huh. And that doesn't, that's, that doesn't put anyone under any stressful stressful situation. There was no mental stress there. Um, so we're walking around and I'm looking for the right place to take the picture. And I, he maybe he, he sits on, on some steps outside his house. And, and, uh, at some point we're walking and he said to me, why don't you take a picture from out down there? And he points with his finger to a, a point on the ground. And I said, and I'm very receptive with people, uh, when I'm taking their pictures, like they're as much in charge as I could be. Um, you know, we do, you know, we, we, we listen to each other. So, um, I immediately start to get down on the, uh, on the ground on, on one knee and it's muddy down there, which I didn't even think about. Um, and as, and I'm, and I'm picking up my camera to frame the picture. Right. And he's saying to me, uh, you know, um, do, do you think I should wear this hat? <laughs> right. And he's, of course he had just taken his hat and, in those years, people didn't wear those kind of hats at all. It would just look kind of strange and so on. And he's kind of goofing. He thinks it's going to look funny on him. I think something like that. That's why he was wearing it or something. And he's, he's smiling about it. It's like, it's like he's having fun with the idea of him in this hat. And he's asking me, do you think I should wear the hat? It was a real question. And I said, I don't know. But as I'm saying, I don't know. I'm also taking the pictures like that. Yeah. And uh, so is he reaching up to to remove the hat? Uh, no, he's putting it on. No, no, no. He's, oh, he's putting it on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's asking okay. me specifically, do you think I should wear the hat as he's putting it on? Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, I don't oh. know as I'm taking that's the picture. The <laughs> right. 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 So, right. So, yeah, so it's really interesting. So a, a bit of a lightning <laughs> in the bottle type of moment there, uh, uh, where the 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 sky is lit up in magic hour. You've got uh, Bob holding, uh, you know, his uh, Gibson uh, looks like a Gibson Birdland uh, acoustic it's guitar. guitar actually, and George George Harrison gave him that guitar. It, it wasn't a guitar nice he played that much, as far as I understand, but it was a gift from George Harrison. Uh, it was a treasured, a treasured uh, uh, a memento. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this you know, um, almost lightning effect with the tree uh, coming out of the upper uh, right-hand corner uh, gives some composition that, uh, you know, is, 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 is background, but, but uh, you know, adds to the, uh, the, the imagery uh, and and yeah. and like I said, it's just it's oh. the most inviting picture of Bob I, I've ever seen. Yeah. Also, his son was with us. His his son Jesse was with us. So in the oh. corner, you can see at the bottom left hand corner of the picture, you can see just the top of his head. Uh, it may be cropped off in some images. And I realized that that people loved the um, loved the photograph because it was showing who he really was. 
his public his private persona was never visible to people during those years. I don't know him now. I don't know him anymore at all. I haven't had any contact with him for 20 years or so, maybe more. Um, uh, but that's who he was to me. When we were interacting, he was this funny, nice guy. He had funny things to say and smart things to say and, and uh very wise man. I remember I realized that he was more interested in hearing me talk than telling me than talking to me. Most people are more interested in talking, right? He wanted to hear what right. I had to say because he already knew what he had to say. And I thought, well, that's really smart to, to really want to listen to somebody so you learn something, you know? I felt that, so I, I learned from that actually. Um, you know, I saw that was, I, was, I, I admired that in, in him. That, that he had, you know, that kind of interest in people, and he was listening. And what's what's that old saying? It's better to uh, keep your mouth shut and let them think you're dumb than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> I never heard that old thing, but now, <laughs> but I guess <laughs> interesting. So we chose that one for the cover. Um, I brought a, a record album sized white card up to his house when I had the film process and a slide projector. And we projected the pictures onto the white card so we'd see what size, it, what it looked like in that size as a 12 inch square picture as a, so on a 12 on a inch album. And as we were projecting them, he saw that picture and he said, that's the one. He just spotted it immediately. And uh, then we looked at it. Uh, the do we want to, uh, if we print it on the cover full frame, then uh, it'll there'll be space on the sides. And so we looked at it squared off and it was perfect. So so we cut the bottom of it off. When I sell prints of it, I sell the whole thing and I also sell a square version of it. So you just see what, what, the, what the cover showed. Um, but anyway, so it was, uh, it was being printed. It was uh, onto a record album jacket and, um, I was invited to go to Bob's music publisher's house. It was Naomi Saltzman. Well, she handles publishing rights at, at the time and for many, many years, if not forever, I don't know. But uh, anyway, so a group of us uh, assembled at Naomi's house um, and Albert was down there and people from Albert's office and people from the record label. And we were waiting for the messenger to bring it from uh, the printing plant in Astoria. It was the first proof of the album cover, right? And Bob was also supposed to come come down there. Um, and so we're waiting and waiting. And finally the messenger comes and uh, open the package and people look at it. And I'm very sad with it because it's much too dark. And because I had seen what a gorgeous picture it was and, and the printer made it much oh. too dark. And I'm... About to say, oh, my God, it's terrible. It's this, it's that. I'm about to say it. And then I hear people all around me going, wow, that's amazing. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, my. You know, just on and on about how lovely the picture is, right? And I realize that if they don't see what's wrong with it, then, then, then I better I'm not keep gonna, my mouth shut. <laughs> there's no reason for me to, to tell them. So I learned at that point to, to um, accept imperfection that. I would go as far as I could, as much as I could control to make it as good as possible. And at some point, it is what it's it is. It's out of your control. Yeah. yeah. And that was a very yeah. important lesson for me because uh, 
it's always, and that's the case with the previous books I've done, is what I'm saying here, that they were, they were imperfect in a way, but they're still really good books. People really like them. But for me, they yeah. could have been better. So this Kickstarter, when the last book was perfect. But, but um, so, uh, and contacting the band will be also. Um, mm. But uh, the reason I told you that story was to, to segue into the next section, the next thing about that picture, which I think is really interesting for you, um, it was it was for me that the bill for that picture, what I charged CBS Records for doing it, it wasn't really an assignment. It's like Bob said to me, "Come take the picture." So I mean, it wasn't. Uh, he just said, I, "He said I need a picture for the back of my album." Oh, by the way, after we saw the picture, we decided to put it on the front of the album. Okay, and, and then we we um, also decided there'd be no writing. We talked about this together that we wouldn't. They would have no writing on on the uh, on the album at all. It would just be the picture itself. And uh, wow. the only thing, and the record, you want to do a Beatles Abbey Road, uh, just yeah. uh, the the picture of the of the guys, or the picture. I guess of so. Bob, right. I guess so. I yeah. guess so. Um, so um, the only thing, and the record, we didn't like that, of course. But but Albert controlled it all, so it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but the only thing the record company did is they put their logo in the upper left hand corner of the picture. And if you have that album by any chance, you you should yep. look at it. Um, uh, and uh, with the logo covered. So first look at it without, with, with, just as it's printed, and then put your, your your thumb over the logo, and you'll see the picture becomes three-dimensional when the logo is hidden. What the logo does is that it flattens it out, and it really takes oh, a lot away right. from the experience. Yeah. Oh, oh, you have the album there? Yeah. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing. It's almost like looking at something 3D, 2D. It's quite, and that's the only thing the record label has to do with the that's, picture. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. And I say that with pride because most of the time, the, the people that were art directors joining the labels, there was no aesthetic there. And, and, and that's what the band didn't want. That's why they asked me to take the picture because they didn't want what was normally done for, for album covers and so on. Um, so, uh, that's important. So now when I sell a print and on my litho and so on, the logo is not there. So you get the full yeah. force yep. of the, of the image. So anyway, the amount of money they paid for use on a record album in those years was $300. So I built them $300 and then I billed them for the number of rolls of film I shot. Maybe it was $140 for the film and processing. And then I charge them for the car rental and the gas. And it came to $740 total and then i had to charge them new york city sales tax which was came out to whatever the number was it was like whatever percentage was came out to exactly 777 dollars was the amount of my bill for taking that picture and if you're into metaphysics at all you know that 777 is a magic number it's it's yeah. the number of manifestation and so on mm -hmm. and and i was into metaphysics at that time and i understood what that meant and for me it's certainly been the signature picture of my life it's not uh, it's not the most important picture I've ever taken, but it's a signature picture. Um, I I'm, I'm saying by not most important. Yeah. You know what? There is no such thing as the most important picture. There, there's so many nice ones that goes on and on. For no, me. Uh, and Elliot, yeah, but, I mean, yeah, I, you could. Uh, our diggers can spend days on your website just checking yeah. out uh, the uh, the options that uh, one can yeah. uh, can get. I mean, you 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 know, you captured uh, certainly the East Coast side of the '60s uh, pretty oh. well. Uh, uh, here, if I had done nothing else in my life, 
I'd be busy for the rest of my life just with this 60s archive. And then, yeah. uh, as you pointed out, the people making I've continuously done other kinds of pictures and new photographs that that, yeah. uh, that I still am um, yearning to get to and really put them out there and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just – and my newer pictures that I think they look like paintings – uh, are not even up there yet. And I took some, uh, a few weeks ago, I was in California, which I told you, and I took these gorgeous photographs on the pier, and they're like, it, 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 it like knocks me out. But they're like paintings coming out of the camera. They're not like photography photographs. They're really, you know what, I can send you, if you remind me, I'll, I'll send you a few of them for personal yeah, in, interaction. Yeah. I'll share them with you. I mean, that's what my website is. I put my impression of flowers on there. I shot through a kaleidoscopic lens. Uh, I have beautiful mother and baby photographs, which I did for many years. Oh, you you have a wonderful book called Love at 60, I think, which uh, is documenting your uh, your love affair with your wife. Yes, right. I was I didn't mean it's a document that I was just she, she looks shooting so pictures good sometimes. <laughs> and but, she was but, shooting pictures. I do. Yeah. So, yes, uh, I think yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a combination of the both yeah. of you. But she looks so good sometimes. I, I have to take a picture like that. And then after yeah. a few years, yeah. she said, I have something I want to write. And what she's written is, is, a, is she said, I want to I want to uh, help women of a certain age, women who are older women, women of a certain age to feel free to change their life when when it's appropriate, not to feel just because they're older that they can't embark on something new in their life. Because we I, I met my wife. Uh, I knew her in college first. And hadn't seen her for 37 years and we met when we were 50 we re-met when we were 56 and immediately you know we're, you know we're, too, we're not nearly but we were together then it's been 20 years now um but she said she wanted to encourage other women to not to be afraid to do that because she had to change right. her life in order to do it um so that yeah. book love is 60 is not published and that's was going to be is going to be my next kickstarter for my, my next because ah. uh, that book okay. too People love it. You can't find a publisher that wants to do it. I mean, I, I look and who knows if I, but so that's going to be my next Kickstarter. And I guess some of that's on the website. Now to Van Morrison. <laughs> Moon Man. <laughs> you want you want to ask a question or should I? Should I no, please. About? Okay. Please. <laughs> I was living in Woodstock, um, having done the band photographs and so on. And then I got a call from um, uh, somebody. I don't know who it was, who and how. I got up there, but I went up there and Van was living in the same house that Garth and Richard had been living in. They had moved out. They, they each got their own homes at some point when, when they, when they became financially successful and Van was living there. It was, it was on top of O'Hare mountain road overlooking the reservoir. Um, and, uh, I walk in, right. I never met him before. And he's got his, he, and his wife, Janet, is there. It's quite a lovely looking lady. Um, and he's got this huge pimple on the top, right in the middle of his forehead. And to, to, today, to think of being photographed with a pimple like that on your forehead, you know, it was just a boil or something like that. It wasn't permanent. You know what I mean? But we're so, we were, by we, I mean musicians that were so unself conscious about that. There was no idea of the image, you know, what's the image going to be? So, um, I, 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 my, one of the things I did when I was photographing people doing portraits and I, I, of course I still do it, but was I always went very close so that often cutting off the forehead, I would just focus on the eyes and the chin 
and the nose and, and you know, the, the, the center of someone's face. And I was often criticized for cutting off the forehead. The art directors would say that to me from Record Album Magazine. You cut off the head, you know, why'd you cut off the head? Something like that. I mean, as mundanely as that. So, but I, I like to do that. So the lens I had with me was capable of, of, of focusing so closely like that so I could get a real close up. So because I had that kind of lens with me, I was able to focus closely enough on him so the pimple didn't show, actually. And, oh. and, 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 and yeah, but that's how I photographed anyway. But in that case, I, one had to do it. There was, you couldn't retouch the same way you can now, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it just suited my, uh, my style, like what needed to be done. And the light was just natural light, that gorgeous orangey, yellow, yellow orangey light. And he looks like Van Gogh in it. Or what, or, I, that's what I was going to say. He yeah. looks like Van Gogh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the light matches him also. That's what's amazing. That's what I say. There's a lot of magic around, around the work that I did and, and still the work that I do now. I, I, I think so. When I look at it, I'm blown away by it because it's a surprise yeah. to me what I see. Um, especially this new paint that like work because can't really tell what's going to come out like. Um, so it was just by just I don't know why the color of the walls in the room and the, the way the sunlight and time of day we were doing it uh, it just all came together to give me this gorgeous gorgeous look in it and I still that's really one of my favorite color photographs that that the, the portrait of him and so and then oh, I got Ellie, friendly with him. Some, some- yeah, you've done some amazing uh, we, uh, work. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we, we've highlighted just a few. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, Nashville Skyline is, uh, you know, a fantastic photo. This one with Van Morrison's fantastic. I can see where the um, uh, the Columbia executives immediately fell in love with your photos of Janis Joplin. In fact, there's a, a, a shoot that you do uh, at uh, Fillmore East in 1968 with Janis, where some of the shots, I think, are the most sexy uh, and beautiful pictures oh. of uh, Janis that's ever been put on film so oh thank you, know, you. i love so much yeah of this. oh thank you i i love those pictures I, in fact i was looking mm-hmm. at them last night with somebody I, I had someone over here and we were looking at them in the studio and i was saying oh my god look at that it's so beautiful uh so well i'm gonna thank have to figure you. out i mean I, i'm a fan five hundred dollars myself and uh oh, you know spend that day well, at well studio you know and, you, you uh, don't have lunch. to pay you you you, you know <laughs> hey if you have seventy five hundred dollars you can spare i'm certainly not going to say no because this kickstarter is really languishing but certainly you, you yeah. certainly you're welcome to visit any time so well, <laughs> with, with, with no thank price you. of entry wow <laughs> absolutely thank, i would love you. it thank you. Yeah, well, you, one, you, one, you right what i wanted to say is that that i, I was thinking as, as you were talking here that uh, to describe my my work then and in general, it's that I go with the flow. That's a '60s expression. Go with the flow. Yeah, yeah. And that's how yeah. I was naturally. I'm. I am. I was like that. I am like that, for better or for worse. And this is what happens from that. And to me, if you live like, if you live life like that, it's it, 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 in a way, it's very zen. Uh, it's it's yeah. the basis of the whole philosophy of religion and so on. But if you live mm-hmm. like that, then good things happen to you. You, you don't need to do bad things to feel good. Um, no. and, and life is good for, for people around you also. You, that, was the, that was the message of the 60s was to do your own thing by, by getting in touch with yourself, finding out who you were, what you love to do, to learn to live from that and with that and go with the flow of life and trust that, that there's an organic chemistry that flows through everything. Um, mm. And that's really what my pictures sh- show. If there's any demonstration of that, my who I was at that time, 
And, um, uh, you know, so, so that's what I like to, to talk about because I hope that people will, will, uh, will allow that, will explore that, that path of life, let's call it, uh, mm. to just go going with the flow, to just, just to be, uh, and, and not to control necessarily. No, I, I, I agree uh, that, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a natural way of existence. We think we can control so much as humans. And, uh, you know, I- inevitably, um, the best we get is a double-edged sword. Uh, there's always, a, a, you know, a, a blowback or, or a, 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 you know, something negative to come out when, when we are trying mm-hmm. to, uh, to control yeah. the world or control yeah. nature. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to just follow, you know, flow with what comes at you yeah. uh, and make the, the best of it, uh, yeah. you know, long term. Yeah you yeah. probably will end up being a happier human uh, uh, because of it. So I, 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 I can see that. I'm into that. I'm into that. It's, it's also, it's a very feminine vibration. When we talk about feminine right. energy, that's what right. feminine energy is about. It's not about what you are physically, your, your, your exactly. body parts. It's about a certain, a certain spirit, no. a certain way of being, a certain spirituality, a type of spirituality. Um, and, and the that's world what, can certainly use more of that right just now. Just what I was going to say, that, that's what has to come, <laughs> for sure. Right, right. Well, Elliot Landy, um, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs in Rock today. This is great. I really, I really enjoyed it. And, and um, I have to thank you for the in, 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 insightful questions that you asked. And uh, there's, something, there's something about your voice that invites invites me to talk anyway i'm sure it does other people also this is what you're doing so so you 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 create a space where one feels free to express themselves thank you for that Did I get the entire Elliot Landy story? (laughs) Not really. I just scratched the surface. I mean, think about it. I just spent the entire time discussing his career only in the 1960s. I do want to thank Elliot for being so generous with his time. It was fun and interesting conversation. Um, I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. Uh, Please, please go to his Kickstarter page for contacting the band. Just search for Elliot Landy on kickstarter.com. And do check out his website at elliotlandy.com. So while we're all cooped up surviving this novel coronavirus, please stay safe. Stock up on food, but don't hoard. Watch your shows on the tube, and then listen to a podcast or two from Pantheon. Uh, Bone up on your music edutainment. And if you want to spice up your life, go to adamandeve.com for all that you and your partner just might need. Use the promo code DIGS, D-I-G-S, at checkout for discounts and lots of free stuff. Seriously. This is good stuff for a good time. Uh, just remember to stay safe. So 
I'm thinking about the music business in the age of COVID-19. And uh, as everybody knows by now, it's just not good. Um, as we all know, with the concert business shut down, uh, this is the worst possible situation for all of our heroes. Without touring, these guys are in terrible danger. I'm very fearful uh, for what the future uh, has in store for all of us on the other side of this uh, when it comes to uh, the musical landscape. Uh, we need to pay attention to our musical friends. Help where you can in these difficult times uh, and hope that this is as short as possible. All right. That's all for now. Uh, not to leave everyone on a bummer, but let me say that this is probably the most significant world event since World War II. Uh, the difference uh, being that we are all in it together. Uh, it's not the fascists or the imperial uh, Japanese that uh, uh, we need to worry ourselves about, uh, or the communists, or um, some other dictator or horrible person. This is a virus. It's, you know, it reminds me of that moment when Ronald Reagan asked uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, in, uh, in Geneva when they first met and started talking about nuclear disarmament. Uh, Reagan um, said something to Gorbachev, which totally changed the tone. And that was, he said, hey, can I, can I just ask you a personal question? If an alien species were to come down to Earth, would you help defend America? And of course, Gorbachev said, yes, without doubt. And Reagan said, yeah, we would do the same thing for the Soviet Union. And that's what we have here, folks, an alien invasion um, attacking us, all of us. It doesn't uh, discriminate uh, for wealth or for color or for race or religion or for anything uh, to do with humans. It is after all of us. Uh, granted, it affects some of us worse than others, but you don't know who that is. So... We need to pull together. Um, we need to combine our forces as allies and defeat this invader as soon as possible. Yes, that's terrifying. That's historical. And that's enormous. So let me leave you with this. What can you do to help? All right. Keep up the rocking. If you're traveling... To the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy On the borderline Remember me To one who lives there For she once was A true love of mine See for me that her hair's hanging down It curls and falls all down her breast See for me that her hair's hanging down That's the way 
Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only. Right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.